Get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, save, retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I don't think I would wake up to do the job if the expectations weren't extremely high. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't interest me anymore. Yeah. Um, so when the stakes are high, especially in St. Louis, you're expected to win every game, mm-hmm. every year. Yeah. That's what wakes you up in the morning. When you talk about the great players, like they like that pressure. They want the game on the line. They want that situation. So for me, like I enjoy the pressure. I, I do. Um, the pressure and the expectations being high in St. Louis is what wakes me up in the morning mm-hmm. and gets me going. If if the expectation wasn't to win, I'm not sure I would do it. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kylie. You've got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. I'm back in the saddle. Yesterday was a rough one for your boy. I apologize. I could not make it back in. Got too excited about the Chiefs going to their fourth Clearly. Super Bowl in the last five years. No, I was... Uh, I was in a bad place, got some food poisoning on Sunday, thought it was because I was anxious. You know what? I should buy you a food thermometer because you get food poisoning a lot. I think it was from getting another uh, convenient place that I could get food from. I'll just say that. And I think I got it from them, and we don't have to go any further into what it was or how it happened. Um, I, during the Chiefs game, was obviously nervous as my team playing in the AFC Championship game. They're on the road going up against a really good Ravens opponent. I'm like, ah, man, I, I'm feeling so anxious. I think I'm sick. And then that sick feeling didn't leave me until after the game was over. And I still felt it even when the 49ers-Lions game was on. I was like, damn, I didn't realize I was this emotionally tied to Dan Campbell and the Lions. And uh, it, it wasn't emotion. It wasn't anxiety. It was um, food that was trying to come back up through my system. So we got that out of the way. Feeling much better today. Thanks to all of those, those of you that reached out. Let's talk Ollie Marmel, T-Bone, because earlier today you were watching his video that he did with Xavier Scruggs. Show and go with X. That is where that cut came from. And you said when you walked through the door today, T-Bone, I'm ready to run through a brick wall for Ollie Marmel. I need you to explain that one to me because I don't think there are very many in our audience that feel the exact same way right now. Yeah, I I don't think I'm, I I think I'm going to be one of the very few compared to our audience that felt that way. But man, just listening to Ollie talk, everybody criticizes him for being a leader. And hearing him talk and talking about expectations here in St. Louis, man, he gets it. I, listening to the talk, he gets it. He wants to win a championship. And he's like the only guy in the organization that gives off that vibe outside the players. And, and that's what I really appreciate. Him talking about wanting to win, you know, expectations in St. Louis. He mentioned uh, in that interview as well later on about, you know, St. Louis expects greatness because they've witnessed greatness throughout the organization's history. And I'm just listening to this going, yes, 
<laughs> yes, it's what I want to hear from a Cardinals person. I, I Hearing him talk about expectations, wanting to win, wanting to just get things turned around for the city of St. Louis. And then just hearing him talk about, like, you know, I have the same kind of conversations I have with an Albert Pouls in his, whatever it was, 22nd year in his final year as the same conversations I have with Mason Wynn. Hearing him talk about kind of what it's like to be the guy, the youngest manager in baseball and being a manager inside a clubhouse of guys with very much veteran experience in the Yadier Molina, Albert Pouls, Nolan Arnato, Paul Goldschmidt. I heard him talk, and I was like, my God, that is the guy I want guiding the St. Louis Cardinals team. I said I said to myself, watch the interview, he's a winner. He's a winner, and that's what I want from the St. Louis Cardinals manager. That's what I want from the guy that's supposed to be guiding this team from a rebound season when they went, won 71 games last year. Yeah, last year sucked. Ollie knows it. Ollie admitted it. Ollie said he feels the pressure. But you know what? He is absorbing that pressure. He's saying all the right things. And I just felt watching that interview, man, this is the guy that's going to lead them to try and turn this thing around. We get a lot of text on the text line. By the way, you guys can get involved in the show. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. I am curious if you have watched the interview with Xavier Scruggs, what your biggest takeaways were. We'll get into many of those over the course of the show today. But we get a lot of texts over the course of our show, especially after how terrible last year was. Hey, guys, why do you still believe in Ollie Marmel? Why do you still think he's a good manager when his team sucked last year and he himself said on this interview, that was me. I'm the one that's managing this team. I've never once been told by the front office what to do, what decisions to make, who to play, etc. And you can believe that or not. I, I, I don't see any reason why he would say that if it's not true. And we have no reason to believe that it's not true. So if he's coming out here and saying all these things, BK, T-Bone, Alex, Bradford, why do you still believe in Ollie Marmel? And my answer is very simple, because I think he's a good manager. And if I think that somebody's a good manager, that doesn't mean that they're exclusively going to manage good teams. People really like Bruce Bochy, right? People think Bruce Bochy, pretty good manager, right? Yep. And yet when he was in San Francisco, it was every other year they were good. In 2010, good. 2011, not so good. 2012, great. 2013, uh, not so good. 2014, get back to the World Series. It was not an every year thing because there are certain years where for whatever reason, it just didn't come together. And that's not always on the manager. We want to be able to blame one thing because that's easy for us to do. And I'm not speaking down to any of you that blamed Ollie. I don't think he was perfect last year. I really don't. But I don't think he was like a top three problem for this team last year. I think many of the issues that were problematic for the 2023 St. Louis Cardinals are way bigger than anything that Ollie Marmel could have done. But to your point of him being a winner, this goes back to the first spring training and the first day of him at spring training. I went back in our archives to March 12th of 2022. This is two years ago now. The first spring training that he was in charge of the Cardinals. This was his message to the team on day one of his first spring training. Take a listen. The expectations for the organization has always been the same to win a World Series. Losing in the wildcard game or losing in the NLCS is no different. Sure, you have a little bit more pride and we made it further, but at the end of the day, a championship is the goal and anything less than that is a disappointment. This year in 2022 is no different. Um, we will prepare in a way to take our shot at a championship. Um, and anything less than that will be a disappointment. He's not afraid. He's unafraid of those expectations. He sets it out up front and says, hey, listen, 
our stated goal on day one is very simple. I'm telling you, the audience, I'm telling you, our players, I'm telling you, management, our goal this year is to win a World Series. And then a couple of days later, Mo addressed the media. Here's what he had to say. He knows we have a talented team. He knows there are guys that, that understand what it takes to win at a high level, at a consistent level, and what it takes to get to October and what it's like to win in October. And so when you have those, those attributes or those traits, you can, you, you can easily connect dots to getting there. Obviously, for all of us that have been around the game a long time, we know there's other things that also factor into that. It's quite the opposite. Those are two very different answers to the same conversation. And so to your point, T-Bone, of saying, hey, Ollie is a winner. Ollie just wants to go out there and win at the highest of levels. Some of this is just the very simple difference of management versus manager. Front offices have to look at the 10,000 foot view of what is this going to be for year one, two, three, four, five down the road. Managers look at it as how is I, how do I win today? My job is to win this game today and to figure out what to do with the rest of them. And so some of it is just that. But I also think there is a difference in the way that some of these people within the Cardinals organization view winning. For the front office, I think they do view it right or wrong, win the division, get into the postseason and take our best shot. And I think Ollie Marmol views it as, hey, let's win 100 games. Let's get that yes. bye in the first round. And then let's take our shot to get to the World Series from there. And it it may be a small difference between the two, but I think it showed all the way back in his first spring training, the first day of that spring training, and it continues to show itself in interviews like this with Xavier Scruggs. Yeah, and I think I'm seeing a lot of people say, you know, they weren't good fundamentally on our text line. Look, that's a roster issue. That That's not on Ollie Marmol. You know who goes out there and fields a ground ball? Not Ollie. I bet Ollie would love to go field a ground ball. That's on the players. I, I think hearing him talk, look, we question some of his tactical decisions, and I think that's fair from last season. I, sure. I really do. But I don't think, like, his tactical decisions put them 20 games below 500. And I said this at the time when that season, when the season ended, and I still believe this to this, this day, and hearing him talk on Xavier Scruggs' podcast there, Man, he, I think he is a good leader in the clubhouse, and that is the one thing I see pushback on. Guys, look at San Francisco. Gabe Kapler got fired because an athletic piece came out and said, hey, this locker room is awful. Not just awful, it's one of the worst in baseball. The same thing was said in San Diego where Bob Melville looked around and went, hey, what the hell is Mike Schultz doing here on my <laughs> coaching staff? Like, there were issues. That never came out to the forefront for the St. Louis Cardinals. I, I think him hearing him talk he feels like a guy that is able to, again, I don't know if he's good tactically. I think a lot still left to be proven on that end of things. But the drive to win, to not just settle for a division win, not just settle for a one playoff win series, to try and get the team to the World Series, hearing him talk about leadership and how you kind of manage a clubhouse, it felt refreshing. And it felt refreshing to hear kind of honesty, honestly, from Ali Marmol. I, hearing him talk, I it feels a lot different to your point on the front office, where I feel like the front office has kind of the win the division, who cares how we get there. Ownership, I feel like, has lost a little bit of its way in terms of wanting to win a World Series. I don't feel that way for Ollie Marmol. And, and that's why that interview yesterday, I felt like I connected with him, at least personally, to where I said, damn, I, I really like him. I think the fan base should love him because he's saying all the right things. He's saying all the right things of we need to go win a World Series because that's the expectation. What was 
the conversation like around Tony LaRussa here in St. Louis? We we liked him, right? We thought he was a pretty good manager. Fair fair to say, Tony LaRussa, proven manager. I see him brought up a lot. We'll go into the hall. Like, that guy is an unbelievable manager, right? Hall of Fame manager. Remember 1997 when the team won 73 games in year two of Tony LaRussa as a manager? Here for the St. Louis Cardinals. I don't think that was because LaRusso was a bad manager. I don't. I refuse to believe it. I think he had a bad team. And I think it took some time for that team to become what it needed to be. His first year won 88 games here in St. Louis. Second year lost 89. And then it can kind of continued from there of being right around 500. Went 183 games the next year, won 75 in 1999, and then boom, the winning really started in full force starting in 2000. And we all know what came from there. You got the MV3, the roster started to come together, you got the starting pitching that started to accumulate, and now you're getting into the early years of the Walt Jockety run, and like everything came together from there. But early on, it was rocky, dude, and those times for Tony LaRussa here in St. Louis. That wasn't because you had a bad manager. It's because you had a bad roster. And last year, for whatever reason, things crumbled for the Cardinals. And we can go into many of them, and we have gone into many of them, and how it happened, why it happened, why they need to get back to building a sustainable winner here in St. Louis. I don't know if they've done that, but I think they're a better team today than they were at this point last year. I think they built an incredibly fragile roster heading into the 2023 season, and basically everything that could go wrong did go wrong for them. And I don't know that they've learned all the right lessons. I don't know that this year it's going to get turned around to the point where they're going to win 95 games. I would bet against it. But I think they have a 91 team. I think they could be right around there. And I think that's enough to win the division. And I think if they are in that like 87 to 93 win range, somewhere around there, this is where we can actually evaluate the manager. Yeah. Because now those one or two games, Maybe it's closer to five games over the course of the season. That can be won or lost by your manager. They matter. And now those those thin margins where the manager makes a difference, now we can start looking at them and saying to ourselves, all right, did Ollie tangibly make the team better or worse? We're going to make those determinations this year. It was really hard to do that last year when your decision was like, Drew Rom. Yeah, do we go within this spot Taylor Motter? Or I don't Luke even and know. Luke and Baker. Yeah, Luke and Baker. Bad options. Jose I mean, Fermin. Yeah, Jose Fermin. Do we use Taylor Motter or Jose Fermin today at shortstop? Oh, boy. I don't know, dude. The answer is probably you're losing this game. <laughs> yep. And so as a manager, that's between a rock, rock and a hard place. I know people go back to the Tyler O'Neill situation. Man, I do not blame Molly Marmo for that. Didn't at the time, still don'ts today. The Wilson Contreras situation, yeah, criticism was deserved in that spot. I don't think the entire organization really knew what they were doing or how to handle that situation. And then they started losing. It went into a tailspin and this organization hasn't dealt with that in more than 15 years. They all freaked out. None of them were in a good spot, mentally, physically, emotionally. So going into this year, I'm with T-Bone. I think you've got a good manager. I think you got a lot of roster problems still. I think you got a pretty good manager, though, and we're going to find out this year exactly what that means for the St. Louis Cardinals. We will play plenty more from that interview between Xavier Scruggs and Ollie Marmel over the course of the show today. We want to hear from you. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line, and we're going to do something a little different today with the mic drops. I want to hear from you via the mic drop feature as well, but instead of doing that on your app today, just leave them at 
399-9646. If you leave us a voicemail there, it'll work the same way. It is still the mic drop feature that you would typically use. It's just going about it a little differently. Uh, it's going to make things a little easier for our producer, Bradford Bruns, today. So if you guys want to leave us a mic drop, again, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to do so. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to dive into some NFL quick hitters. But coming up next... Guys, there are two areas that have changed since Drew Bannister took over for the St. Louis Blues. Are they sustainable? I don't know, but they're sustainable enough that they're now in a playoff spot. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex Ferrario out for the next couple of weeks. He is on some well-deserved vacation. He and his family heading down to Disney World for the next week or so. T-Bone, while he's out, we got to talk a little bit about the St. Louis Blues. This is our opportunity to have some real, honest, hard-hitting conversations about the Blues because obviously we can't do that when Alex is here. Yeah, They've been good. I'll give them credit where they're due. The St. Louis Blues are suddenly a really solid hockey team. Now, don't look at any of the underlying numbers. They will scare you away. But they've won five in a row, man. And if you're watching the way that they're doing it, kind of feels real to me. Now, sustainable? I don't know. But they're winning games, and it feels real while you're watching them. So they've won five in a row, and the real reason why they've been able to do this is twofold. One, they just keep playing. Just very simply, they, they get down, huh. and they find a way to come back. Man, when they don't give up, you mean they actually play well? Yep. They were wow. 0-13 this season when trailing after two periods under Craig Berube. In those exact same situations, trailing after two periods, they're 3-5 and five under Drew Bannister. So they're about a 500 team when trailing after two periods. That is a remarkable statistic for them. They have also erased six deficits in this five-game winning streak. It's been three different games where they've been down two different times within that individual game, and they've been able to fight back and come back within that game. Didn't think they were capable of that. And yet, here we are. The other thing that's taken place, T-Bone, is, and I know Alex has talked about this a lot, how important it was that they were just awful in the power play, and it was removing any possible way for them to be able to come back in individual games. They got a good power play suddenly. The Blues power play was 31st out of 32 teams in the league at an 8.4% conversion rate when Craig Berube was fired. 31st out of 32 teams. It is 7th in the league under Drew Bannister at 25% since he took over. So you went from having the second worst power play in the NHL to a legitimate top 10 unit in the league. So now you're getting good um, goaltending at five on five, you're getting a great power play unit and you've got guys that are competing. When you add those three things up, man, that's good enough to make the playoffs. It's probably not good enough to go on a run. It's not going to be anything where you look back on this team and say to yourself, hot damn, it was a 20, uh, 2018 run all over. No, it's, it's none of those things, but can this be a team that sneaks its way into the postseason as the final wild card team? Yeah, you can. In an in a, in a Western Conference that's down a bit this year, that's probably the formula for the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, it, it definitely is the formula for the St. Louis Blues because 5-on-5, five five, I mean, their numbers are not very good, even under Drew Bannister. So if you are gonna leave, if you can just keep the game close at 5-on-5, five five, who cares what the metrics say? As long as the scoreboard's not lopsided, 
then you can go to a power play and you can take advantage of it. And they haven't really done anything different but just put a body in front of the net. And, and now that they have a net front presence, which, surprise, surprise, that was the thing Craig Bruby was clamoring for for the last, like, two years before he got fired, you're, start, you're starting to see them have success. And I, I don't know how sustainable this is because I think you're right. When you peek under the hood, it goes, oh, my, this is a problem. They're bringing off just those good vibrations that we talked about with the club a couple years ago. And the fact that they're not giving up when they give up one goal is the most impressive part for me. And it tells me that Drew Bannister's got the ear of the locker room. And and it's why I said this yesterday. I feel like he's now, I can just officially say he's the guy. When you're looking at that interim tag, I I would remove it. He's clearly the guy for this squad because at the end of Berube's timeline, I, I don't think it was Craig Berube's a bad coach. The message had just grown stale and the players weren't responding and you saw the results to where they couldn't come back in games. Now you're seeing them compete every game for a full 60 minutes. Now they may have a stretch of hockey where they don't look good, but at least you know right now, okay, they're going to get their feet under them at some point, and they're going to come out, and they're just going to play well, and hopefully they get on a power play and they're able to score on it because I, I don't think they have the talent to go on any kind of run. I don't know how sustainable this is, but you know what? They're competing, and at least gives them a shot in a down year in the Western Conference. So somebody on our text line, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Um, somebody said, guys, tonight is a must win for the Blues, especially when they have a tendency to come out flat after breaks. I could see the argument for this being a a must win game for the Blues. Columbus is terrible. They're a really bad team. And you are trying to ride this momentum into a break for basically two weeks off. It's a rare opportunity for you to be able to feel really good about yourself as a team going into a break. The Blues haven't really had that in like two years, uh, an opportunity to feel that way going into it. So I could see how you could convince yourself. I don't know that like must win is probably putting too much pressure. They should feel good about themselves. They win five of the six games going into the break. But yeah, I I could see how you could convince yourself of that. And especially like you look back, not just in net tonight, too. I would assume I haven't seen what the lineups expected to be, but I would assume Benner and net coming off of Hofer on Sunday. Yeah. And just look at their January as well. I mean, as a whole, not just in the five of the six games have they played well, but in January, I think it was eight of the 12 opponents they played were all playoff teams and they held their own in that in that stretch in January. They've played really well. So this isn't just a five game little like mini run. This is a whole month in which the St. Louis Blues have played really well against playoff teams, and you're right. I, I don't think I would put any must-win on this game. Win or lose, hell, they should go in the break feeling well because they at least now are close enough to that playoff picture and are no longer on like that fringe of falling out of playoff contention. They had a three-game losing streak. If they lost three of five in these five games, I think we would have definitely been saying going into the Ulster break, you can clarify them as sellers because they could have fallen out of the playoff picture. So, by the way, uh, just to clarify, Bennington is officially in the starter's net going into tonight, so you should expect him out there uh, for the Blues. No update just yet as far as I've seen on Perunovic's uh, status. He got an MRI yesterday after hurting his leg in the game the other night. T-Bone, the other thing that we've talked a lot about is what do the Blues do during this break when it comes to the trades? Last year, you remember, Ryan O'Reilly was traded like three days after their break heading out of the All-Star break because... (laughs) Army was like, oh, okay, now you guys are going to start winning? Mm-mm, no, let me trade Achari. Let me trade Ryan O'Reilly. I want to make sure everybody knows where I'm at on this team. We are not getting back into contention. This thing is over. I am putting an end date on this right now. Well, Elliot Friedman was on the 32 Thoughts podcast the other day talking about the Blues and their trade chips and how teams around the league 
are viewing what the Blues have to offer. Here's what he had to say. Doug Armstrong, he had a lot of his players out on the market, and there was not a lot of interest. I think one of the guys that there would have been interest on was Buchnevich. I think he could trade Buchnevich pretty easily if he wanted to. Obviously, he hasn't wanted to. What he said there at the beginning is the important part. There's not a lot of interest in a lot of the Blues players. And this is not surprising to me. This is what we've been talking about, Tebow. I'm like, okay, yeah, are you going to be a seller? Are you going to be a buyer? Are you going to be a holder? What do you do? I, When we would talk about this with Alex, I would say, okay, but who are they selling? Like, what are you getting in return for some of your pending free agents? Because Oscar Sundquist, I really like him. Are you getting something more valuable via trade than what he is currently bringing to you on this roster? I think the answer is probably no. I think he's just more valuable to you inside of that locker room and on the ice right now. Are you getting something more valuable by trading, I don't know, um, Kasperi Kapanen right now? No, he's hurt. You're not You're not getting anything of significance for him. Are you getting something of significance for Sammy Blay? No, probably not because other teams have the same information that you do. So you're pending free agents. The only one that really has value is Marco Scandella, and that's minimal value. We're talking like third round pick at best, maybe, probably something less than that. Probably a lottery ticket prospect. If you traded him, is it the worst thing in the world? No, but I kind of like having a little bit of depth defensively if you're going into a postseason run, especially when, as we're seeing right now, Scott Barunovich is not exactly the model of health. So I'd like to have the opportunity to have a seventh defenseman that I trust and that can go into the lineup when needed. So for me, especially now that you're in a playoff spot, I'm holding right now. Everything that we're talking about them doing that could be a significant move it's all available to you in the offseason, man. These guys are still under contract beyond the 2023-24 season. It's like if you want to trade Pavel Buchnevich prior to his deal expiring here in St. Louis, you have an opportunity to do that this summer or next deadline. If you want to trade Brandon Saad to a contender, you have an opportunity to do that this summer, next deadline, the following summer, the following deadline. Like a lot of these moves are just, they're not pressing needs. They're not pressing decisions, especially because army has come out and stated publicly hey we're in a two to three year retool here okay cool like you can keep doing what you're doing right now with tory krug and justin falk and nick letty and colton pareko and brandon sod and kevin hayes none of these guys are urgently needed to be moved if somebody gives you a godfather offer sure go ahead and trade them but i don't see that happening and so for him i think the team is making his decision pretty simple because they're winning and if they continue winning and you're not getting significant offers for these players on your team keep them all see what the season becomes, and then make some decisions in the offseason. Yeah, and they're not in a desperate spot to, like, they need draft picks or they need prospects because they've got a good prospect pool. They're not They're not in desperation. Like, if this was a team, like, when the athletic rankings come out of the whole prospect system, as you look at go, oh, 28th, then I'd say, okay, maybe you really do have to sell a Pablo Buchnevich. They've got prospects. They have their first-round pick. Like, they, they're not in desperate need of anything, so they're in a good position in the retool. And, and I think you're right. I think you hold because you don't want to sell low on a – Brandon Sod or somebody that's got term on their contract, I think you hold. And in fact, I think you probably even look to buy potentially at the deadline for like, if you can get a, pro- a project, like if you can get a third, a third line winger or a top nine player for like a second, third round pick, that's got maybe another year of control. You take on another player like that to insert him into your lineup to see if you can just see if something hits and add more depth of scoring to your squad. But yeah, I, I don't see them selling anything at, at the trade deadline because 
you're you're right, and we've talked about it. Like one, it's clear the league doesn't like what you have currently, <laughs> and two, you're not going to get much for an Oscar Sundquist or a Marco Scandella, and you're really not at that point where you should just absolutely just get rid of them. He's Tanner Hendrickson. That's Bradford Bruns. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up tonight at 6 o'clock. Excited for this. Grant France is going to be doing pre, post, and intermission for the Blues versus the Blue Blue Jackets. A huge opportunity for our guy Grant. Excited for him to be on pre, post, and intermission. Puck drop for Blues versus Blue Jackets coming up tonight at 7 o'clock. That is all right here on your home of the St. Louis Blues 101 ESPN. Coming up next, let's get into some NFL quick hitters, including... I would like to have a conversation about Lamar Jackson and where we're at with him right now. Plus, I think people are focusing on the wrong decisions with the Lions and what actually led to their loss. T-Bone, I got a bone to pick with you as well on that. We'll get into it all coming up next year on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside T-Bone and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kylie. You've got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex out for the week. He is down in Disney World. All right, T-Bone, what did we learn about Lamar Jackson on Sunday? Because we're going to, I said on Friday, there are very few individuals going into this weekend, maybe nobody with more on the line than Lamar when it came to the criticism that is sure to come his way if he has another flop in the postseason well i'll be damned he had exactly that he did not play particularly well in my opinion he did so against a defense that has made most quarterbacks look pretty bad so far this year but this is this is a trend seems like every year lamar gets to the postseason and we see one of these stinkers from him what do we learn i i think we learned that lamar is a great quarterback but i'm not sure he'll ever be able to get you over the hump to the super bowl I, because I watching him play that game, I did not feel like, and this is the way I felt with Patrick Mahomes, where like I don't think his cast is great. Granted, Kelsey's back in his prime suddenly, but Mahomes can lift up the guys around him. No matter what the weapons are Patrick Mahomes will ever have in Kansas City, I always go, that guy can always get you to the Super Bowl. I look at Lamar and I go, man, I didn't think his weapons were great, and that's why I didn't think I was going to be critical of him this weekend. But after watching him play, I'm like, okay, he can't take guys and lift them up. He has to have a cast around him that is just great for him to get past a Patrick Mahomes to get to a Super Bowl. I think he's a great quarterback. I think he's a quarterback that you love to have in your organization. I don't know if he's the guy that can get you there to the promised land. See, Tanner, that's where I go against the grain a little bit because I don't necessarily think that we've ever learned this was the opportunity for us to discover can he be a great quarterback and for whatever reason through a confluence of events there Jackson's decision making his inability to get the ball out quickly the play calling from Todd Munkin that's what we learned that he is not yet on that stage a great quarterback great athlete absolutely great decision maker and quarterback I beg to differ I mean he's your five at some point I feel like we had a pretty good idea of who Lamar was as a player. And I think sometimes people hear criticisms of Lamar and they like, 
they take it either too far to the extreme or they're like, no, Lamar's amazing and there's nothing that he's ever done that's been wrong. I, I think Lamar's excellent. I, I would, if my team didn't have Patrick Mahomes as its quarterback, there's like three guys that I would rather have than Lamar. He's, he's an unbelievable talent. And I think there will come a time when Lamar probably wins a Super Bowl. I, I think he's going to do it eventually. But much like Josh Allen, dude, there's just too many mistakes in his game right now. There's too many weaknesses in his game. Lamar held the ball way too long on Sunday. That was his problem. And some of that is on him. Some of it is. I think T-Bone had the right read on this Ravens team all along. I don't think their weapons were as good as people suggested that they were. Odell Beckham was very clearly not healthy at the end of the year. Like, very clearly not healthy. There was that deep ball that he had where he beat Josh Williams off the line. Like, flat out yeah. beat him. Great inside move. Got back outside. The fade was there. Lamar was going to hit him in stride. And Josh Williams, like, just caught up with him. That doesn't happen if Odell is healthy. So I think Odell was hurt going into this game. Rashad Bateman just never became the receiver that they wanted him to do, him to be. They've got Nelson Aguilar out there taking a lot of important snaps for them. Oh, yeah. So it's Zay Flowers and a bunch of guys. And Zay Flowers is a nice player. I like Zay Flowers. Zay Flowers is number two on a good team. Yeah. And they had Mark Andrews come back. He looked fine. Isaiah Likely, I think, is a really good number two tight end. He's probably underqualified to be like a real legitimate number one playmaker for a team. You want him to make a couple of plays for you every week, and that's it. So I don't think he had a great supporting cast this year, and I don't think that's his fault. I don't think his offensive line was as good as people made it out to be. They had a left tackle that's playing with, like, missing body parts all over. Ronnie Stanley was literally getting subbed out of games every single week because they wanted to manage the load on his body. There's flipping tack Like... I don't know, man. I think Baltimore was a really good team this year. I think their defense is what made them special. And I think during the regular season, Lamar was able to run around and make a bunch of plays against a bunch of different teams. You can't do that against this Steve Spagnolo defense, man. So people expected too much out of him. I say all of that to say this. Lamar's great. Lamar's going to win a Super Bowl at some point in his career. But Lamar still has holes in his game right now. And it's okay to acknowledge that. The only quarterback that doesn't have holes in his game right now plays in Kansas City. That's it. He's the only one. Josh Allen... He's got some holes in his game. Lamar Jackson, holes in his game. Any quarterback that you want to talk about. Dak Prescott. Uh, hell, even C.J. Stroud we saw against the Ravens. Still some holes in his game, despite being an excellent rookie. It's going to be all right. We don't have to go so far as to say, like, this guy's a fraud. He's no good. He's not a real quarterback. He's just a running back. No. He's just a good quarterback that has some flaws in his game, and they were all exposed by Steve Spagnuolo on Sunday. I, I think he's in the category of Josh Allen for me, which is, yeah, he's a really great quarterback. But if they were in the NFC, though, they'd be going to multiple Super Bowls. Their 100%, problem is they play in the AFC at the 100%. time Patrick Mahomes is there. And, but, but that's where you have to have a little bit of a, what would you call it, curved scale when you're looking at a Lamar and a Josh Allen, because those guys are great quarterbacks, and they probably deserve to be at a Super Bowl. But you can't have a hole in your game, and you have to be able to lift up the squad around you when you've got to go through Patrick Mahomes. And we didn't even mention his name because he got hurt and he wasn't even in the playoffs this year. Joe Burrow's in the AFC. Yeah. And Joe Burrow is at the same level as a Mahomes, a little bit below him, but up to that same level into that top tier. And if you're Lamar, you're Josh Allen, you got to play perfect. Otherwise, you are going to be going home every single 100%. time. 
Having said all of that, are we still having this same conversation if Baltimore actually had made it a priority to put the ball more in the gut of Edwards Hill, et cetera, and not to put right. Jackson yes, in obvious third so long situations else, all day, all first, day? First of all, the Chiefs were baiting them into that because they had eight guys in the yeah. box. I've heard a lot of people talking about how, oh, they should have just run the ball. Okay, cool. You want them to run it into eight men in the box or put the ball in their MVP's hands? They're going to put it in Lamar's hands. Still have screen game capabilities not against this defense because they have the they best defensive it. backs in the nfl when it comes to tackling in space so again there's not a good plan the plan of attack is to put the ball in lamar's hands and you hope that it, something good comes out of it it didn't it didn't work because the defense beat them somebody else on the text line said guys mahomes did win that game the defense won it no mahomes knew exactly what he needed to do to win that game that's what happened on sunday mahomes had a very tom brady-esque game where he went into it and said what do we need to get to how do I need to play to win this specific game? And it's something that Mahomes did not do very well at the beginning of his career. That was probably like the one mistake is he went into hero mode. He had Josh Allen in him early on in his career. And he thought, I have to make a play on every single play. I'm going for a touchdown on every single play. He doesn't view it that way any longer. He is now viewing it as what do I need to do to win this game? And against the Ravens, I think he had a pretty good idea. Our defense has a good plan to come in here and hold them to 13, 17 points. We can get off to an early lead, get them down by 10 points for the first time in two years. By the way, it was the first time since 2021 that the Ravens had been down by multiple scores, which is also another problem. Um, they don't know how to come back from those kinds of deficits because they don't have to come back from those kinds of deficits during the regular season. I think we can go out and win this one like 17-13, 20-17, etc. And so I think Mahomes knew exactly what he needed to do to be able to win that game. If he needed more, if they had put the ball in the belly of their running backs and they got a few extra yards here or there, I think Mahomes would have done a little more in the second half because that's what he does, man. He finds a way to win. All right. On the other side of things, the other team that's getting a lot of criticism, T-Bone, you are a fraud, my friend. You, sir, are a fraud. I heard you yesterday talking about the Detroit Lions hey, and their decision-making. just like them. Oh, oh it was a perfect time. I couldn't believe what I had heard. So T-Bone's on here talking yesterday about how Dan Campbell went and got super aggressive and T-Bone was mad at him because you can't do it in that spot. T-Bone, I asked you, I think it was not more than a month ago, if Dan Campbell does the same thing in the playoffs that he has done all regular season and the results flip, where instead of converting on fourth down at a 75% clip, which is what they had done all year long, 75%, one of the best teams in the league at converting on fourth down, and suddenly they don't convert on fourth and short. Maybe it's because of a drop. Maybe it's because the defense just won on any individual play. You take play. the damn points and you don't have to worry about a drop. Both of which happened on Sunday. And specifically if it happens when you're eh, 45 to 48 yards away from a field goal, a distance at which your kicker has made roughly 53% of his kicks in his NFL career. That's on the front office, get a good kicker. Sure, but that's the situation that you're dealing with. And you came on here yesterday and criticized that man hey, when I'm, you said, I would understand it and I like the aggression, whether it works or it doesn't work. You criticized the process, not the results. And you criticized the results yesterday? Did I hear that correctly? You, you are a fraud, good no, sir. I, You're a fraud. You know what? No, I was caught up in the moment in the regular season and the playoffs are different. Circumstances change. We know that. Exactly. And they need to take the points. Can I give you some big news out of the NFL? out of Detroit the Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson has informed the Seahawks and commanders he is staying in Detroit wow. according to sources that is per Tom Pelissario okay good for him man he shouldn't have taken either of those shops they're exactly. not great jobs 
that is big for the Detroit Lions. He's pulling the the bin. Uh, what's his face? Bin. Go ahead. I'm gonna f- figure out his name. Uh, Celtics coach, former Celtics coach. Oh, uh, I can't remember his Why name I- either. Brad Stevens. Brad Stevens. Why am I <laughs> okay. calling him Ben? Ben Stevens. Brad Stevens. Whatever. Um, he's pulling a Brad Stevens. Where Brad Stevens stayed as long as he could until he got the right job. Not just a job. He stayed a Butler as long as he could, and then he got the Boston Celtics job. Yeah. That's what he's doing. He's saying, "I I'm gonna stay here, and when the right job presents itself, the Chiefs." The Cowboys, one of the jobs where I've got a good, established quarterback in a good situation. That's what he's going to take. Good for him. Yeah. It, so go back to the thing that you, uh, you're you trying to avoid now with this news that you just passed along. That was I can't clever. believe you. Well, that, that this is Dan a, Campbell criticism is nonsense. Uh, it's well-deserved in the playoffs, though. I mean, come on. Like, And look, if you, if you don't want to bring up the fourth down situation, how about running the damn ball okay. on third down? That's the actual decision that should be criticized. And I can't believe that it's just gone completely under the radar for people saying that they should take the points, which isn't a guarantee, by the way. Again, the kicker had made 55% of his kicks Never from this distance. Odds. So I have a better chance, according to the odds, of converting on this fourth down, 75%, which is what the Lions were on fourth and short all season long, or 55% of my kicker making this 45 to 50-yard field goal, which has not gone well for them all season long. And by the way, these are pressure-packed situations where I definitely don't want to go to a kicker that I don't trust. I'm going to put the ball in the hands of my guys. And by the way, if Josh Reynolds just catches a football, the play worked. The design worked. Everything was there except for Josh Reynolds catching the ball. All right. Neither here nor there. The play that was actually an egregious decision by Dan Campbell was the third down decision, third and goal from the one yard line to run the football. Now, if you are just gung ho, hell bent, you have to run the ball in this spot. If you're going to do it, you do it on fourth down. But even if you feel the need to do it on third, you have to immediately have your fourth down play call ready to go. You cannot take your time out there. Yeah. Because taking your time out in that spot immediately means you either have to get this onside kick, which is like a 5% chance in the NFL now. Like even honestly, maybe lower than that. Or it's over. Because you can't stop the clock three times in a row. So they're just going to take the knee three times straight and it's game over. So Dan Campbell in that moment, that is where he actually lost the game for his team. That was an egregious decision with so little upside and unbelievable downside. The decision to run on third and goal is actually where Dan Campbell lost that game by a decision that he made. The fourth down decisions were, they were 50-50 calls either way. I could have understood arguing for the field goal or for the go for the uh, fourth down conversions. I'm more aggressive. I think Dan Campbell has leaned aggressive all year long. I had no problem with him going for it in those spots. But again, you could argue either side, and I I think there's reasonable opinions on either side. The third down decision, there is no reasonable opinion on the other side. That was just flat out wrong. Yeah, you either, like you said, you either run that play and immediately go to fourth down, or you quickly run the field goal unit onto the field. And I couldn't believe you decided to run the football. Like when Greg Olson was talking about it on the broadcast, I went, no, no, you can't, he's not going to run. And he did run. And you have to be able to Mm. throw that. You're right, because when you take that time out, you essentially say the game is over yep. because you're not going to win an onside kick. And if you have any thought that you're going to win an onside kick, you should be fired because it just doesn't happen in the NFL anymore. So you're right. That is the play that definitely decided that game. But I, I still had a problem with the fourth down one, especially the first one where it was, hey, you can go up three scores, 
You have to in that opportunity. To me, you have to go up by three scores against the San Francisco 49ers, against the best roster in the NFL. Even though they hadn't played like it in the first half, they are the best roster in the NFL all around. And that's why I felt like he had to take the points to go up by three scores. That's Tanner Hendrickson. He's Bradford Bruns. I'm Brandon Kylie. You're wrong on it, but I respect your opinion on it. Coming up in about 15 minutes or I'd so. Still be playing. I can't imagine caring about this Moises Gomez decision. What? But people have some strong opinions on it. And we'll get to them coming up here in just a little bit. But next, questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We're right back to more of it. It's PK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Six four six is the air comfort service text line for an abbreviated version of questions and answers because I couldn't avoid criticizing T Bone for being a flip flopper with the Dan Campbell situation. All right, from the six one eight, T Bone, what is one pitcher who the Cardinals could have signed this offseason that would have made you believe that they were a favorite to beat Atlanta, Philly, or the Dodgers in a series, or maybe a secondary piece of this? Was there one pitcher who could have done that for you? So I, I never was big on Aaron Nola. That's probably the one name that's going to pop up the most is Nola. I, I think the guy, and he's still a free agent for me, is Blake Snell. I, I think Blake Snell, you bring him into this rotation to be like a one or a two behind Sonny Gray. Now you've got the upside and the swing and miss stuff, and it plays out perfectly. You know what? The regular season is the five innings, clearly not what they're looking for this year because they want quality starts. Yes, but in the playoffs, having a – Blake Snell go five innings, strike out 10 guys, and like allows one earned run. Yeah, that's the kind of guy that makes a difference in the postseason. I, I'm I'm not surprised he's unsigned still, but he would be the one that I, I would say would change my outlook on the Cardinals. Just deepens your mixture that much. And I agree with you insofar as Nola, it never really seemed practical. To me, he was always elevated above the rest of the mix simply because that postseason track record it's indisputable and that's what you could have counted on no doubt yeah Yamamoto that was the answer I mean but they were never going to spend 300 million dollars on a pitcher so uh the whole point was kind of moved they clearly won't spend on Snell 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line from the 314 BK how can you say that T-Bone was wrong when the outcome proved that he was right thank you Detroit proved the definition of stupidity so my, my opinion on the Detroit decisions on fourth down is pretty simple. I think they were 50-50 calls. And there are tough decisions that you make in life that don't have a lot of stakes to them. Like T-Bone, we make decisions every day with our rundown, right? What are we talking about and when? And we place them in certain spots for reasons. Like we think there are certain things. Our 12 o'clock hour, just to full disclosure, it's our highest rated hour on the on our show. So we put our best stuff for the most part under the 12 o'clock hour, at least what we think is going to be the best stuff. There are days where we're wrong. Sometimes we put something in the 11 or the 1 o'clock hour that would have been better for the 12 o'clock hour. But the stakes of that are incredibly low. Nobody in the audience probably even notices that we made a mistake on that day. When Dan Campbell makes a mistake in those spots or when something that he does ends up being wrong looking back on it, it's a big deal, and it loses him a potential NFC Championship game. But there were 50-50 propositions. Could he have taken the points, quote-unquote, there? Sure. The thing that nobody really discusses, though, is if he had kicked the field goal in that spot, 
and the kicker, as he did roughly 50% of the time in those kinds of kicks, misses it, then what? Like, are we now criticizing him for not going for it as they had done all year long and him maybe shrinking in the moment and saying to himself, yeah, you had a bad kicker. You should have known that. You've got a team that's making 75% of your fourth downs. Maybe you should have gone for it there. Of course we would have because we criticized the or we criticized the results more than we criticized the process. I thought process-wise, given what he had done all year long, I would have gone for those spots. If this was... I don't know, 49ers, for example, or the Rams, they are super conservative on fourth down decisions. Those two coaches, Shanahan and McVay, yeah. if they had suddenly started going for it in those spots, I would have been like, whoa, they're losing their minds and they're getting overly aggressive because they don't trust their defenses right now. And so I think a lot of it comes down to know your team, know who you are, understand who your ethos is as a coach and as a team, as an organization. The Lions are a hyper aggressive organization and they have operated this way for two and a half years. So yeah, I, I had no problem with their decisions, although I also acknowledge taking the points there would have been understandable if it was a different team in the same situation. So um, I'm not as over the top as I've seen some be in this spot, but I, I think it was right. I think it was right. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to be joined by Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues Insider for The Athletic. JR is one of the best things that we have going for us today, so he's going to be in our 12 o'clock hour. But Good coming up him. next, I just... I would love to hear from you guys on the text line. 314-399-9646 is the air cover service text line. What am I missing here with this Moises Gomez conversation? Are people actually upset about this? Or is it people just continuing to be mad about other decisions that have been made prior to this in the offseason? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Is 27 years old. He's a plus defenseman, on base guy. Hit 243, 324, 349 was a slash line of 459 plate appearances a year ago. This is somebody that, again, I think they bring in to add some versatility to to the roster. But how much versatility do you need? You've got starters that can play multiple positions. Now you've got bench guys that can play multiple positions. I don't know. I don't know really what they're looking for. But you dumped power again to bring in somebody that, again, is a plus defender that can get on base, depending on his playing time. I don't really, again, I don't, I don't really know where we're going here. So that was Anthony Stalter on the fast lane yesterday talking about the decision that the Cardinals made over the weekend uh, to add a new player to the roster. Tanner? Yeah. I just can't bring myself to care about this wow and i feel like i've got to be missing something i i really do because people had strong reactions to the cardinals picking up alfonso rivas and dfaing moises gomez now let's set the stage a bit because stolch just told you a lot about what rivas can bring to the table he is a 27-year-old player that has mostly played first base in his major league career, and defensively, he rates out really well, actually, defensively over at first. Offensively, he's been a little below league average, like nothing to write home about, but in the minors last year, had an OPS of 1,000. He's a really good player down in the minors. He's also 27 years old. There's little to no upside in him as a player. The real talking point here is not who they picked up. It's Moises Gomez who, when the Cardinals acquired him, it was seen as a no-risk proposition. 
He was coming off of a season with the Tampa Bay Rays, where, by the way, he was DFA'd by the Rays, and he had an OPS that year of 565. But a couple of years prior, he, he was a guy that hit a, a bunch of home runs previously, like a top 100 fringe type of prospect in, in their system. A lot of people were excited about him. So the Cardinals pick him up, and man, that first year was impressive. 39 home runs in 120 games in the 2022 season for the Cardinals. Okay, there might be something here. He's still striking out a lot, but man, was the power real. And so last year, you come into the season, you're like, let's see if there's something here. Because if there is, man, this could be a, a, a hidden gem that the, the Cardinals were able to find. And they got it for nothing. Like there, there was no expense that had to be paid to get a guy that could be a 30 home run hitter in the big leagues. And it, it just it couldn't have gone a whole lot worse last year, man. Like, he hit 30 home runs, which is nice. Dude, the guy struck out 180 times in 130 games. Ooh. He had an OPS of 750. He hit 230 and got on base 29% of the time, and he did it at the AAA level. On the season, there were only six players in all of AAA that had a higher strikeout rate Van Moises Gomez last year, 32% was his strikeout rate. All six of them had a walk rate that was at least 13% on the season. Moises Gomez has a walk rate of 6% on the year. So his walk rate was half of the guys that were ahead of them in, in strikeout rate. So they were at least finding other ways to get on base. Every single one of them had an on-base percentage of 330 or better. Again, Gomez was at 290 there's nothing left to see here, guys. Moises Gomez has lost his prospect status. He's a 25-year-old guy. Maybe he goes on somewhere else to have like a Luke Voigt type of impact and he hits a couple of home runs. And you're like, man, we could have had him. Yeah, but what was the role here? Where was he ever going to fit in? And maybe most importantly, my surprise was not that the Cardinals decided to let him go on the 40-man roster. My surprise is that it took this long. Because last year at the end of the season, they had opportunities for Jose Fermin, Taylor Motter, Uniel Cuercudo, Juan Yepes, Irving Lopez, and Michael Ciani. I, I don't even remember some of these at-bats that took place. But all six of those guys got at-bats for the Cardinals on their 26-man roster after August 1st last year. You know who never once got an opportunity? You know what? The 28-man roster. I forgot. They have the expanded, the expanded the roster. And still, Moises Gomez didn't get an opportunity when the games didn't even matter for the Cardinals because they were on pace to have their worst season in 15 years. And all of their dudes were on the IL. Like At that point, Goldie, Donnie, Arenado, Newpar. If you, uh, if you knew the name of a Cardinals player, there's a good chance they were on the IL by the end of the season. And even then, Moises Gomez couldn't crack the 28-man roster. And so, yeah, it was time. I'm not surprised he got cut from the 40-man roster. I'm just surprised it took this long. What am I missing here, T-Bone? I, I don't think you're missing anything. Like, I I, I just I find the move interesting because it's another, A, left-handed bat that they're bringing in, and B, like their fifth first baseman that's in the organization depth-wise. But, like, you're right. I mean, it, he had no role here in St. Louis. He wasn't going to be playing outfield. Hell, he's not good defensively in the outfield. And if he's striking out the percentage you said at, at AAA, that's going to balloon once he gets to the majors. There was clearly a major hole in his swing. I have no issue with them making the roster move. Like, I, if they feel like, hey, this guy is a better depth piece than Moises Gomez, okay, then release Moises Gomez. Like, I, I have no issue with that. The part that I find interesting about the move is potentially, okay, 
is this leading to something or was this just hey this guy's better than Moises Gomez? I think it's probably that that one that I just said. But I I found it interesting that they brought in another first baseman. I had no issue with the move. I mean, offensively in terms of his numbers at the majors, he's been what Alec Burleson's been in his first two years. I'll sign up for that guy being a part of the organization as a depth piece that's actually good defensively, can play first base, and can play a little bit of outfield if needed, where I look at Moises Gomez and said, all right, really not an outfielder and had a major hole in his swing. I do kind of like that they're hoarding left-handed hitters. You've got Donnie, Gorman, Rivas, Young, Burleson, Newt Barciani, Carpenter, all as left-handed hitters on the 40-man roster. That's eight of your 17 non-catchers on your 40-man roster among the position players that are left-handed. I like that. That's not an accident. They're clearly trying to find more of a left-handed presence in their lineup. They saw the value in that last year. They saw what happened when Donovan and Gorman go down with injuries during the season and Newt Bar go down with injuries for the season. So maybe that's part of this, T-Bone, is just to continue to increase the presence of lefties on the 40-man roster in case they run into more injury issues this year. I felt like that was a problem last year was their lack of depth from the left side. So maybe that's what it is. They just felt like, hey, we had a lot of right-handed hitters on our 40-man roster. We need to get more of a lefty presence, and they decided to go out there and get it. Somebody on the text line I think makes a fair point. I think in the past, players walking out that had talent plays a huge part of the role in terms of the criticism for this kind of a move. Arena and Jose Adoles Garcia both having success definitely doesn't help the organization. The fan base continues to watch this talent walk through the door without them getting a chance to succeed here, and it's getting old. Watch guys having postseason success elsewhere instead of having that with the Cardinals. Agreed. I just think, like... The Arena one, using that as a model for any of these others that we're talking about is just so different. Randy Arena was a real prospect and had yeah. big-time success at the AAA level at a young age with the Cardinals. They traded him and got something of significance in return. This is not that. Jose Adolis Garcia was not that. Not only did the Cardinals give up on him, but then the Rangers gave up on him, and they were lucky that nobody else claimed him when they released him from their 40-man roster. So... This is closer to Jose Adolis Garcia. I would say the difference is Adolis Garcia had real value defensively. Like, you could see it with him, where he's got a cannon of an arm and he's athletic. It didn't come together yet for him defensively, but that was something where he he had something out there. That's just not the case for Gomez. If Gomez is going to have a future in major leagues, it's going to be as a DH. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, I feel like I'm hating on Brock Purdy, and I need people to bring me back down to earth because I saw what he did on Sunday, and I thought it was a good game impressive comeback i feel no differently about him today than i did on saturday maybe i should feel differently we'll talk about that coming up in about 15 minutes jeremy rutherford is next we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex out today. He'll be back in in a couple of weeks. He's taking off some well-deserved vacation. He and the family going down to Disney World as the Blues are heading into the break after tonight. They have one more prior to the break, though, against the Columbus Blue Jackets. They are winners of five straight, including four in a row by a final score of four to three. And right now we're going out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues insider for The Athletic. And he joins us each and every week here on BK and Ferrario. JR, appreciate the time as always man how you doing today oh good anytime boys yeah alex getting rewarded for all those uh one o'clock in the morning post vancouver 
game there. recaps, right? I, I do not envy his job around this time of the year, to say the <laughs> least. He gets in here at, let's call it 9.30, 9.45 every day, and then sometimes doesn't leave the station until like 1 a.m. It is not an easy job. Beats digging ditches, but uh, he, he puts in a lot of work, to say the least. So he's more than yeah. deserving of some time off. All right, Jared, let's talk a little bit about these Blues because they've won five straight. If you look at the underlying numbers yep. at five on five, it is not pretty, but they just keep winning and they're doing so with a good power play and really good goaltending. How much are you believing in what we're seeing right now from the Blues? Well, I think obviously we'll find out in a couple of weeks and I know they have the 10 days off with the break, but uh, when they get back, we'll see what parts of their game they're able to sustain. Uh, you're right. The analytics say that they're not supposed to win a lot of these games, but also you look at teams around the league. I, I remember you guys had Thomas Drance on and you talked about the Vancouver Canucks and in no way, shape or form. Am I comparing the St. Louis blues to the Vancouver Canucks? The Canucks have a great roster this year and, and are playing well, but they're defying a lot of analytics. And I think you know, this is a, a small sample size with just the five games, but you know, when you win what three of them in overtime, another one with a minute to go in regulation with Brandon Saad, you know, a little bit of puck luck, getting out shot, uh, scoring some timely goals, and, and things are happening for you, you have to give them credit. That's kind of the stance I've taken the past couple games is this. If we're going to be critical and sometimes overly critical for what's happened this year with some of the poor play, I think you have to give them credit where credit's due when they're pulling out some wins like this. JR, what has changed on the power play? Because, like, I look at the roster. They haven't brought in, like, a major change into the roster and the personnel. So what has changed that's led to this power play having success? Yeah, Tanner's shooting a little bit more, and I think uh, they've moved some guys around. I really do think that that net front presence has been a big deal with uh, Jake Neighbors and also with uh, Oscar Sundquist on those two units. Um, I think that there just wasn't enough traffic in front of the net uh, most of the season. And then I know they tried some different things, and perhaps guys weren't willing to go to those areas, but those two players in particular have been great. They've also moved some guys on opposite sides of the ice, you know, put guys where they're, uh, you know, better, better position to shoot the puck and, and get it off. And I think at some point you just realize that what we've all been saying is if this team were even average or close to average on the power play, they'd be right there in the standings. So, you know, I think probably the coaching change sparked a little bit of uh, energy for everybody and, and that's helped as well. But, uh, you know, they haven't changed much personnel and I don't know that uh, there's much strategy change on that power play. So I think it's just those things that I mentioned that have come together. JR, what's the latest with Scott Perunovich? Saw him today, guys, and unfortunately for Scott Perunovich, he was walking out of Enterprise Center wearing a boot on that left foot. Uh, you don't know if it's a foot or an ankle injury. He had an MRI yesterday. He obviously will not play tonight, BK, and uh, they said he'd be reevaluated when they come back for the break. And I know we've mentioned it a couple times this week, but it's a 10-day break. So to me, it looks like a week-to-week injury because drew banister did not say yeah we should get him back by the uh, the return of the break uh so i think they'll they'll reevaluate him and it could be some time after that jr we have had some people text in asking what the status is for perunovich when it comes to his his free agency at the end of the season do, do you have clarity on that is he going to be an rfa after this year what's what is your understanding of what his contract status is yeah, I think uh, what will likely happen, he's a group six. It looks like what he'll qualify for, and it, it comes down to games played, and obviously these injuries will, will play a, a factor. Uh, but uh, we all know that he didn't play a lot of games at the start of the season too. But it looks like he'll be a great group six UFA, so he would be unrestricted and, and free to sign elsewhere on July 1st. 
JR, speaking of a pending free agent, Marco Scandella, I, I saw in The Athletic you guys were asked, you know, one piece, one player that each team can move on from. And I saw your write-up on Marco Scandella saying maybe he's the piece they move on from. But the part I found interesting was you said that maybe the Blues try and re-sign him. Do you think that's a path that they could really explore this offseason, maybe sign him to that like Robert Bortuzzo role where he's a sixth slash seventh defenseman for them? Well, I wouldn't rule it out. That's the thing. Are they going to re-sign Marco Scandella? You know, I'm not going to say that quite yet, but I think when you look at guys they could trade at the deadline, uh, Marco Scandella being one of their few UFAs along with like an Oscar Sundquist, he's one of those guys. And, you know, Scandella I think could help uh, a team as a depth defenseman. You're always looking for seven, eight, nine defensemen when you go off on a playoff run, uh, especially those contending teams. And so I think he could be attractive, but is it worth it to the Blues if you're getting a middle round pick, you know, let's say maybe a, as high as a third, but probably a fourth or, or fifth, uh, it might not be worth it to the Blues if you're still in a playoff race. And I think Marco Scandella, for all the criticism, you know, uh, he's been given, including, you know, from, from myself uh, the past couple of years when he wasn't playing well, I think he's been pretty good this year. So as far as a contract extension, here's my take on that. I know that sounds out of this world that you'd be thinking about a contract extension for Scandella, but if you're going through a retool and he's a guy you can play as a, Six seven guy and he's okay. He's not okay with sitting out, but you can sit him out, and it's not the end of the world. I think that's a possibility that you do bring him back, like you said, in that Bortuzzo role. We're talking to Jeremy Rutherford for just another minute or two here on BK and Ferrario. You can read his work over at the Athletic, where he posted part two of his mailbag earlier today. You can also follow him on Twitter at JP Rutherford. Jr. The thing that I wanted to get to from that mailbag was your conversation with a couple of different analysts from the Athletic about the work that we've seen done from that Nick Letty and Colton Pareko pairing. The analytics, again, going back to those numbers, they they don't really see particularly highly of that duo. But as I sit down and watch the games, man, I, I feel like they've played really well. So I honestly don't really care too much about those numbers. But from what you understand and you look into both sides of things, what would you say is your thoughts so far this year on that Pareko and Letty pairing, JR? Yeah, I was actually just having this conversation with uh, Luke Korak as we were wrapping up the morning skate. Here, here's the thing that we have to be clear on. Look, you have the eye test and you have analytics. And some people lean towards the eye test. Some people uh, will give some attention to the analytics. Some people try to blend both. The situation, we wrote about it in the mailbag, is I go by the eye test. Pareko, individually, he's been uh, terrific this season. Letty, of late, has been really, really good. I, I think the pair has been good. Um, but when you look at the analytics and what they're looking at, it isn't Pareko's offense. It's not, hey, he's got eight goals. That's too shy of his career high and, you know, he's on pace for this many points. And so his offense is up. They're looking at the offense generated by the team when Pareko's on the ice. Correct. And it rates, it, it, it rates below the league average. So that's what they're looking at. Now, I think people in St. Louis could say, well, this isn't a good group of forwards, and they went through long stretches without producing any offense, so why is that on Pareko that these guys can't score? Well, that's the part of analytics that you have to understand comes with the territory. So, you know, I think anybody here in St. Louis who's watched the majority of the Blues games would say that it's been a really good season for Pareko, but when these analytics people are putting the numbers on their screen and comparing the offense generated by the team, according to uh, the rest of the league, it just doesn't stack up. JR, speaking of those analytics, I mean, the analytics say that it doesn't stack up well for the defense as a whole so far this year. How, how would you evaluate the defense as we're getting to the All-Star break? Yeah, 
I think uh, you guys can hear me okay? Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Okay, I think the defense was so bad last year that I think here in St. Louis there was it, it was only going to go up, right, if it was going to be good this year. And I think that when we look at this defense, I think we can say that. It's leaps and bounds better than it was last year. Now, with that said, you know, I don't think the defense has – lost this team a lot of games this year, like we could say on an every-night basis last year. Now, the Blues did go through a stretch towards the end of Craig Berube and early on with Bannister where the defense was not up to snuff and they tightened it up. So so to me, I look at the defense as it's been probably a, a B this year, which, again, you go back to last year, it was an F. So it, it's tremendously better than it was last year. And, you know, you tie that into the analytics. How does it rate with the rest of the league? You know, probably not that great, but I think here in St. Louis, uh, the way they've played, it's been really good and not been a point of uh, contention, I think, as you try to grade this team. JR, enjoy the game tonight, man. You got a couple of weeks off after this one, uh, at least in terms of watching the Blues play. I'm sure you'll have some all-star coverage as well. But enjoy this one. We'll talk to you again next week. Find all of JR's great work over at The Athletic and follow him on Twitter at JP Rutherford. Thanks as always, man. Appreciate the time today. Yep, thanks, guys. You got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford, Blues Insider for The Athletic. Appreciate him joining us as always. I'm sure there are some of you, we've seen it on the text line, that uh, get annoyed with hearing about any of the numbers, especially because right now they're not kind to the Blues. Like, if the Blues are an analytical darling, we like hearing about it, right? Because holy cow, look at this top line, the way they're performing. It's like the best top line in the NHL. Or, oh my God, Jordan Bennington, any way you look at it, he's the best goalie in the league. And when the numbers aren't in favor of your team, and this is not just Blues fan, like this is any fan, right? Because you don't, you don't want to hear about the... Especially when your team's winning, you don't want to hear about something that's like, oh, yeah, but this isn't sustainable. And I understand that completely. The reason why we bring it up is because when you hear from some of these national analysts, whether right, wrong, indifferent, somewhere in between, this is the stuff that they're looking at for the most part. Let's be honest. They don't have time to be able to watch every single game of every single team in the NHL. They're going to spend the majority of their time watching the teams that are contending for the postseason this year. And for a large portion of the season, that was not your blues. So a lot of them are looking at the blues. They're looking at the numbers and saying, write them off. We don't even have to talk to them. We don't have to talk about them. They're going through a hot streak right now. This is going to, it's going to dissipate in a while. They'll go right back to where they were. And as I watch the games, T-Bone, I, and I'm a numbers guy. I, I I like looking at what they have to say to see, okay, what am I missing something here? Is my, are my eyeballs telling me one thing? The numbers tell me another. And that is the case here because my eyeballs are telling me, Blues are a decent team, and the Western Conference isn't that great. And they found something on the power play, and they've got a goalie that's keeping them in games, and their defense is better, and they're starting to figure things out offensively, and while it's not great by any stretch, they are getting to the front of the net, and that's converting on more of their opportunities. So I do push back a little bit on the numbers right now. I, I think that they are underestimating this team, not because I think the Blues are like a top 5-10 to 10 team in the NHL, but because I think the Blues are good enough to be able to make the postseason this year. I, I think they're good enough to make the postseason right now. I, I think the deadline can change a lot because if teams around them add and the Blues kind of just stand pat, I, I don't know. I That's that's where I would say right now because I, I look at the eye test. I think there are some games like that LA Kings game, for example. I go, yeah, okay, they, they should win. They could win this game. But then I look at games like Vancouver. Um, who was the first one on this West Coast trip where – uh, Calgary, where it's like I watch the game and I go, man, they didn't like show up for 40 minutes. To be fair, though, the opposite was true whenever you look back at the um, Colorado and Pittsburgh games from late December, where I felt like they played really well and weren't rewarded yeah. for it. So if you continue to play 
these one-score games, and they're playing a lot of one-goal games right they're now. They're really good at them, too, by the way. Yeah, and, and that is something that is typically unsustainable. But because of the way that they're playing, and they're good on the power play, and they've got good – it's like a one – we talked about this with the Marlins this year, right? When we had Skip Schumacher on the show and we asked him, what are you doing that is allowing you to be so good in these one run games? And he said, show me a team that's good in one run games and I'll show you a good bullpen. Show me an NHL team that's good in one goal games and I'll show you a good goalie. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is the blues are good in these spots because they have the goalie advantage in the majority of the games that they're playing right now. I would also add this to your point on the deadline changing things. I just don't know who around the blues are going to be super aggressive. Yeah, maybe Arizona, but Calgary, I think, is selling. I think Minnesota is going to be selling, um, if anything. I, Seattle, maybe they get a little aggressive, but I think they know this isn't the year to really push all in for. The Kings might get aggressive, but they're already currently above you, and you have a playoff spot behind them. I don't think Nashville is going to get overly aggressive. They know this is part of their retool. So I think a lot of these teams, Nashville, St. Louis, Arizona, they're all kind of in the same mix I don't know that anybody from that group is going to be overly aggressive. I think it'll be more like Colorado, Vancouver, Vegas, Edmonds. Those are the teams, Winnipeg maybe. Those are the teams that are going to be really pushing their chips into the center. Yeah, you're probably right. Arizona is the team that I just circle as like at some point you got to start giving away some of the assets that you have. So they're the team I keep an eye on because I think it is just a three-team race. I think it's between the Blues, Predators, Coyotes, uh, and then if you want to throw Seattle in there, you can. But I I think it's a four-team race, I guess I should say. But I don't see anybody really doing a lot. And then I just I, – I read more into those numbers, and I say they can't keep relying on the power play to win them hockey games. They've got to start playing better at 5-on-5. Five five. He's Tanner Hendrickson. That is Bradford Bruns. I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But next, I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a hater right now because I watched that game on Sunday with Brock Purdy, and I thought to myself, yeah, this is pretty much exactly who I thought he was. And yet people seem to be talking about him in a different light. What am I missing? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. When you look at what Brock Purdy was able to do, Brock Purdy has separated himself from Dak Prescott. Brock Purdy has separated himself from Tua Tagovailoa. Brock Purdy has separated himself from guys like Kirk Cousins, from guys like Justin Herbert. He was asked in the most pressurized moment to be the best he could possibly be. And you know what magnifying glasses do, right? Brock Purdy, in my opinion, if I'm looking at those two games Saturday, Brock Purdy did what we would have expected Lamar Jackson to do. Some strong words there from Ryan Clark alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns. I'm Brandon Kylie. I didn't have that same impression from what? the game this past weekend. I thought Brock Purdy was fine. I thought he made some plays, and I will give full credit where it is due. That second half, he, he played much better. First half wasn't great, but the second half, he played a, a lot better. And so, T-Bone, I, I wanted to ask you this, and I wanted to get the thoughts of both you and Bradford Bruns. Am I being a hater here? Because I'm okay with it. Like, if I'm just hating on somebody, I it happens sometimes, right? You have blinders on, and sometimes you're just wrong about a player, and it takes you a while uh, before you're able to see what others see. And for me, what I saw from Brock Purdy on Sunday against the Detroit Lions was exactly what I expected to see from Brock Purdy against the Detroit Lions. It just took more than a half for him to get there. Guys, the Detroit Lions have a terrible, and I mean terrible passing defense 
They give up explosive plays at one of the highest rates in the NFL. When you look at what they do specifically against motion and play action passes, they are a bottom five defense in the league. All of this suggests that the San Francisco 49ers offense was basically constructed to destroy the Lions defense. So I went into this game thinking that Brock Purdy was going to have a good one. Like I put up some lineups together in my daily fantasy stuff this past weekend. Brock Purdy was the quarterback that I wanted to utilize in all of them. Same. Because I thought he was the guy that was going to have a big week and it was going to be tough for either Lamar or Mahomes to have a big game because of the defenses that they were going up against. Brock Purdy was going up against clearly the worst defense that remained in the conference championship weekend. And so I expected him to play well. And oh, by the way, the Lions run defense has been excellent lately. And so it all came together and there's got to be a big Brock Purdy game. And I think Brock Purdy's capable of that. That being said, I also think he threw a couple of passes that very easily could have turned into interceptions. Very easily. One of them ended up turning into a 55-yard play that Brandon Ayuk <laughs> caught to get them down to the two-yard line. Yeah, which one in particular? <laughs> so I guess I'm saying all that say this, T-Bone. Did Brock Purdy play well on Sunday? For a half. Did Brock Purdy play great on Sunday? Absolutely not. And so what he did this past weekend changed nothing in the way that I view him in the grand scheme of things. I think he's a middle-of-the-pack quarterback that while he's on his rookie contract, you can win with him. When he's starting to get paid, I will have serious questions about whether or not that is a guy that can be the driving force of the 49ers winning football games. Yeah, I'm with you. I I don't think you can shed that kind of game manager tag which is what he's trying to do since the roster is so great around him if you only play well for a half because a big reason they were down big in that first half was because Purdy was not good in the first half um so I I'm kind of with you I was he good in the second half yeah and credit to Brock Purdy because he is the reason that they're in the Super Bowl for playing really well in the second half but he was also the reason that they could have not been in the Super Bowl because he didn't play that well. Exactly. So I, I don't think a lot changed for me, like maybe a little bit in terms of the way I view Brock Purdy, but I, I want to see him do it against a really good defense. Like the Super Bowl, he goes out and he plays great in the Super Bowl against that Chiefs defense, which is really good. You know what? Then I'll give him his roses. Then we can have a real conversation of him like dropping that game manager tag and being a legitimate like, hey, that's a franchise quarterback that you want to build a team around. Right now, I'm still not there. I, I, I think he still has a lot to prove. Yeah, congratulations, Brock Purdy. You did your job. You executed in the second half as you were supposed to against the Detroit Lions. And for me, I need to see a credible entire game in the playoffs from yep. Brock Purdy. Let's not allow him to be off the hook or to get off the hook after a pretty wretched first half against not the Green terrible. Bay Packers too, right? So what I think a lot of people are grappling with here, BK, is the notion that for those who perhaps are just checking in or maybe didn't monitor Purdy's whole game that, that closely. Okay, the fact that he was able to actually make plays on the run, showcase some mobility, that's not what people were expecting. Therefore, that's what we're looking at here and praising for him as much. Yeah, but that's and, who he's been. Well, yeah, but how many people associate that skill with him? I mean, then they're not watching. That's like, what I, I'm saying. I don't, I don't need to make up for the fact that people aren't watching the player. He, this has been the guy that he's been for two years now. Yeah. When he gets in there, the biggest difference between he and Jimmy Garoppolo is that he can run. 
That's it. Like, the throwing is not all that dissimilar from Jimmy G. They both make baffling decisions sometimes. They don't see linebackers in the middle of the field. They're not all that dissimilar as throwers of the football. But when you get into the playoffs, you need to have that mobility. Like, you have to be able to avoid the free rusher. And whether that just means great pocket mobility, Joe Burrow was excellent at that. Tom Brady used to be amazing, the best, honestly, that I've ever seen at manipulating the pocket. Not running, but finding, like, a six-inch stretch where he can just avoid that free rusher and get his offensive lineman back into position to make that block. Some guys have that skill. Other guys have the scrambling ability. Purdy has that uh, scrambling ability. When we saw Garoppolo, he had neither. And so what ended up happening is they decided to move on because they had to. But like, man, sometimes I I look at the guys that have made a Super Bowl in recent years, especially coming out of the NFC. And I say to myself, we are just getting out way over our skis on how great you have to be to get to a Super Bowl. We saw a few years ago, Jared Goff made it to the Super Bowl with the Rams. Nick Foles made it to a Super Bowl. Matt Ryan made it to a Super Bowl. Like, this is not something that has never been done before. Joe Flacco made it to a Super Bowl. This is all within the last 12 seasons in the NFL. I just named like five guys that are pretty good quarterbacks. We are just watching the latest version of this. When you're surrounded by excellent talent, especially on the rookie deal, that's the way that this can work sometimes. I want to go through the quarterbacks because Ryan Clark said that he would take right now Brock Purdy over Dak, Tua, Cousins, and Herbert. I would not. I would take him over exactly zero of those quarterbacks that he had mentioned there. Let's go through. Would you take Brock Purdy or this other player that I'm about to say, okay? Josh Allen. I'd take Allen. Yeah. Tua. I would take Tua, but I think it's closer. I agree. Than it should be. Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I, I take Rodgers. Yeah, if he's healthy, even, taking even Rodgers. without that, Achilles. Lamar. I take Lamar. Joe Burrow. I take Burrow. C.J. Stroud. I take Stroud. Trevor Lawrence. I. Uh, Would it be odd if I said I would take Purdy? I I think he takes better care of the ball. I think his decision making is a little baffling. If I put Trevor Lawrence in the situation with the 49ers and I put Brock Purdy in the situation with the Jaguars, Ooh, who's the better? You quarterback? know what? Never mind. I'm changing my vote to Lawrence. That's a good point. Same. Uh, Patrick Mahomes. Move on. <laughs> Justin Herbert. I'd have Herbert. Dak. I would take Dak. Uh, let's see here. Let's go with Hertz. I would take Hertz. Uh, okay, this is a fun one. Jared Goff. Oh, man. I think that's really close. I, I, I would take Goff, and here's why. I think he, like, so Purdy has a unbelievable cast around him, and he puts up good numbers. I don't know if they're, like, gaudy numbers and i think golf would put up gaudy numbers around that cast what about this is a fun one as well jordan love i would take jordan love and i wouldn't uh, think twice about it i think i would take love too because i was really impressed go head to head and love had clearly the inferior yeah. supporting cast and outplayed brock purdy head to head well yeah. not only does he have the improvisational talent but the ability to make those off-platform throws yeah. are you kidding me it's uncanny i think he would be amazing in that 49ers offense like yeah. absolutely incredible yeah i think i would take love too I, kirk cousins i would take cousins i think justin cousins. fields oh man i i don't have a great read on fields i'd probably take purdy over i think fields. so too uh, okay, who else do we have here? Nobody else really good in that. Okay, uh, Stafford? Oh, I would take Stafford. Kyler? Um, I would take Kyler. I think I would, too. I, I think it's close, but I'd take Kyler. We just took 16 quarterbacks over Brock Purdy, and I don't know that many of them were all that difficult. Like, there were maybe two or three where I was like, ah, maybe you have to think of 
I think at best, Brock Purdy's like the 17th best quarterback in the league right now. And again, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being the 17th best quarterback in the league. Jared Goff is right around that range. I think when Joe Flacco went to the Super Bowl, he was kind of in that range right there. He had a great postseason run. Eli Manning, I believe for his entire career, was roughly the 15th best quarterback in the NFL. He had a great defense. Steve Spagnuolo was on the other side of the ball, had a couple of really nice runs, and he's a Hall of Famer because of it. So if Brock Purdy stays in this system, he's surrounded by this kind of talent, continues to have a really good defense on the other side of the ball, he could have a similar career to Eli Manning. Not all that crazy to believe. But let's be real about what he is and what he isn't. I don't even know that saying that he's a game manager is totally fair. I think that's disrespectful to game managers because he's not a very good game manager. He's like Kirk Cousins. He's going to take his chances. He's going to have somebody on the other team intercept him here and there. And because he's got great playmakers around him and he's putting up 50-50 balls to guys that make that closer to like a 70-30 ball for him with Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuel and George Kittle, it's going to work out a lot of the time. 49ers are a really good team. The worst piece of that team is their defense. The second worst piece of that team is Brock Purdy. So I I don't think anything, for me at least, changed with the way that we saw him play over the weekend. One other thing real quick before we get out of here and get to the juncture on the other side, and this applies to the Lions who we were just talking about a little bit ago. One of the reasons why I always say you, you don't want to take a run for granted is because of what we are seeing this week, this matchup between the 49ers and the Chiefs. This was a stat that came out from Pro Football Talk yesterday. There are a total of 12 starting players from the Chiefs and the 49ers combined that were in the starting lineup the last time that these two teams met. 12 total from the starting lineup the last time these two teams met to where they are at right now. They played four years ago, man. This is not some long extended stretch between playing one another. Four years later, 12 total starters remain on those two teams. It is uh, Kyle Juszczyk, Kittle, Debo, those are the only three starters offensively for the 49ers. And then it's Bosa, Eric Armstead, Fred Warner, and Dre Greenlaw on the defensive side of the ball. So they have zero members of their secondary that remain from the last time around. Wow. And then for the Chiefs, it's Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. And then McCole Hardman, who technically left this past offseason, but came back because he couldn't get on the field in, in New York. And now he's been deemed back to the bench. He had exactly one snap in the game last week against the Baltimore Ravens. And then on defense, it's Chris Jones and Derek Nottie, who's on the IR. So it's basically Mahomes, Kelsey, Chris Jones. That's it from the last time these two teams met, again, four years ago. So when you think your team is in the midst of it, the reason why you should basically have the mindset that the Rams did, which yep. is bleep them picks, is because it's done after potentially two to three years. That version of your team is gone. Snap of a finger. You're going to have to completely recycle your team basically every four years. So get it while you can. I don't know if the Detroit Lions are ever getting back to where they were this past weekend. And so that's why it hurts so much. That's why when you have these fourth down decisions that are legit 50-50 calls and they go against you, dude, it is the worst feeling in the world. That's why when you're Lamar Jackson and you've got a shot with the worst Chiefs team we've seen in this version of the Mahomes era, and you got a chance to be able to win at home with the number one seed, best defense in the NFL, you hold the other team to fewer than 20 points, and you lose, oof. Frankly, that's something you can't you, you cannot ignore that quickly. That's why today's Detroit development with respect to Ben Johnson is very, very integral, I would say, too. Yeah. Keeping it together for as long as you it's can. It's hard to keep the coaching staffs together. Yep. I mean, Baltimore, we're seeing that with them. I, their defense coordinator is very likely to get a head coaching job this offseason, and that's going to change things for them. Alongside T-Bone and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kylie coming up at the top of the hour. 
you, you really can't ask for a better answer from your manager when it comes to analytics than what we heard from Ali Marmel when talking about it with Xavier Scruggs. We'll get into that at the top of the hour. I also want to hear from you guys, the mic drop features on the 101 ESPN app. If you have heard that interview with Ali Marmel and Xavier Scruggs, what was your biggest takeaway from it? We'll get to all of that coming up at 1 o'clock, but coming up next, time for the Junk Drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Alongside Tanner in Bradford, I'm BK. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. T-Bone, what do you have for us today? All right, so you know of Tom Holland, right? The actor. Familiar, yes. And you saw Very the movie. Good in Spider-Man. Yeah, you saw the movie Avengers Infinity War or Endgame. I can't remember. I think it's Endgame for this story. Have you heard of the actor Tom Hollander? Oh, yeah. He He's an actor, a British actor, uh, probably most famous for his role in Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, okay, yeah. He was a bad guy yeah. for a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he was he's now doing stuff over in, in uh, England and he was doing, a, I think it was a PBS show and he checks the mailbox one day and he sees he has a check and he looks and it's a seven figure bonus check. No. And he goes, <laughs> wow, this PBS show must have done great. <laughs> well, it's not actually written to him. It's actually written to Tom Holland. It's his first box office bonus that no accidentally way. got sent. To Tom Hollander. I can't imagine. And he said, like, I opened this up and I'm doing this show for like $30,000 or or $300,000. And here's this seven-figure check that just is in the mail. That's amazing. Imagine. So what did he do? He He gave it back. he... He reached out to Tom Holland. He somehow got it back to him. And got him the check. I wonder who it was from. It was probably from, like, the production company that was involved with all of the Marvel things. So he knew exactly where it was coming from and... I would imagine he's probably been confused once or twice for Tom Holland in his career anyways. That is amazing. That is an incredible um, mismanagement of funds, to say the least. When I saw this story, I was like, surely not. Because that had, like, when I first saw the headline where it was, Tom Hollander receives Tom Holland's bonus for uh, Endgame, I was like, well, that had to be a huge bonus. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, it it was seven figures. Uh, and I can't even imagine like opening up the mailbox just to see that. Oh, I, I'm not going to lie. I would have had the moment of, do I actually? But I don't know how you could sign for that check. But unbelievable that he received the wrong bonus check that was supposed to go to Tom Holland. At the moment that he received it, he said, quote, I don't think I'm in the Avengers, but I'll go ahead and open it anyways. That was a big cast, but I don't recall seeing him. Commodore Norrington, you've come a long way. It was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. It was a seven-figure sum. That is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, Wow. Yeah, that is. Can you imagine if you're Tom Holland, you're like, yo. Why are you giving my seven-figure check to somebody else? What else have you done with my funds? That, this I, is one of the things that, like, we give a lot of credit 
to these billion dollar industries and then something stupid like this yeah. happens and you're like man they are just like us i I, mo- I misplaced my keys they misplaced a million dollars <laughs> yeah yeah same thing basically um, same i i imagine tom holland getting a phone call and picking up the phone because it's a random number going hello hey this is tom hollander who like I, I just hope Tom Holland said that. Oh, okay. So it was, it was this, it was an email, not the actual check. So they had, they apparently share gotcha. the same agency, and the talent agency reached out to say, "Hey, we have your your check. It'll be dropped into your account." So they, it must be kind of like we have with the company here, where it's like, "Be Kylie at whatever." Their emails are probably like oh, we T. Gotta Holland work on and that. T. Hollander, and it probably just finished it for them. That's probably what it was. We got to work on that. All right, that makes a little more sense. At least it's not like the actual funds that were placed into a separate Is it account. better, though? Come on. This oh, is a, yeah. This is millions of dollars. It's just an email. It's still, not the actual it's money. Not, it's not. unacceptable still. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get into a game of bet it or forget it. If you guys have anything for that, get it in on the Air Comfort Service text line, 314-399-9646. But coming up next, you just can't ask for a whole lot more when it comes to answering questions about analytics than what all marmal had to say earlier today at least in my opinion that being said i want to hear from you guys 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line and the mic drop features on the 101 espn app what did you think of ollie marmal's interview with xavier scruggs we'll talk about it next year on 101 espn we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn Ollie knows that people aren't on their side. Every either manager or coach in sports talks about championships. Sure, the Cardinals have a standard that I personally think is gone. Nobody looks at the Cardinals the same. That's why you, you're not able to go convince a Blake Snell, for example, when you know you can afford it and you know you can get it done. And besides him saying geographically, I don't want to live. I, I don't want to live there. You can, you know, back in the day, you're able to convince these guys. You're able to, I mean, it was there three years ago when you're able to convince Nolan Arenado and you haven't been consistent for him. You made the wild card, you lost in a one score game. It just, and then, and then the year we got swept by the Phillies. It's like, how can this happen? And, and then last year had what happened. I mean, Skip Schumacher leaves Ollie and he becomes manager of the year and he had Skip. The year we were good two years ago. I mean, clearly that's the guy you should have hired. They hire Ollie because he's, he's he is a yes man in a way. So that was a mic drop via the 101 ESPN app. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Clearly skewing a little bit more on the negative side of things with Ollie Marmel. And I expect to get a a decent amount of those. I don't think that Ollie has a whole lot of fan support right now, which is understandable. He won 71 games last year, and this is a market where winning 71 games in a season is unacceptable. It should be unacceptable. The last time that they won that few games was uh, 1990. It's been more than 30 years since we We've seen a season like that. It was abysmal. It was no fun. All of us hated every moment of watching it. Trust me, as somebody that was literally paid to watch those games, I hated watching every one of those. You guys aren't paid to do it. It had to be a miserable experience for you to put your hard-earned money towards that team. Understandable. And yet, I still think Ollie's a good manager. I really do. 
And I think we've seen stuff like this before. Tony La Russa, you look back at his second year with the Cardinals. It went pretty similarly, man. Year one, a lot of success. Year two, it took a massive step back. And then he was able to rebound. And that's why I think this upcoming season is such a massive year for Ollie Marmel. You can have a mulligan, but you get one. After that, now they've made some of the requisite changes to the roster. Last year, I can point to some of the issues within the roster and say, okay, that was a roster building issue. I, I genuinely believe that. I think last year you could have had whoever you deem to be the best manager in baseball, whether that is you think Skip Schumacher should have been the guy or Bruce Bochy or anybody else, whoever the guy is in your mind, Terry Francona. I think they would have won 70, between 70 and 75 games last year. I think maybe having the best manager in the in recent memory gives you an extra like five wins. I don't think last year's team was ever going to do anything meaningful. So when I have that in the back of my mind, I, I give him a mulligan for it. But T-Bone, I still think he's a good manager. And when I was listening to his interview earlier today with Xavier Scruggs, I, I came away thinking to myself, man, I, I've got a lot of faith, a lot of belief that he's going to be able to get this thing turned around. Did you feel the same way listening to it? Yeah, I really did. I, listening to that interview, I, I felt confident that you give him a roster a roster that can actually win some baseball games, he's going to be a net positive. You know, I, I agree with you. I, I think no matter who you put on the Cardinals bench last year, you put Bruce Bochy there, I think, like, they win 75 games maybe. Like, I, I just don't see him as being the issue. I think last year's issue was a roster issue. Why did Skip Schumacher have success in Miami? He had a good roster. Like, he he had a really good roster. So, I I listened to the interview with Xavier Scruggs, and I came away from it, one, with the mindset of Ali Marmol wants to win, which I think is very critical because I think, to the mic drop's point, I do think some of that has gone away from inside the organization in terms of winning more than just the Central Division. And two, hearing him talk about leadership made me go, yeah, this guy, he may be the youngest manager in baseball, but he kind of gives off the vibe as being like a wise veteran, if that makes sense. And that's one of the criticisms I see a lot for Ollie is that he doesn't he's not a good leader. He's not a great clubhouse guy. Hearing him talk of that Xavier Scruggs uh, podcast and that interview, I walked away from it going, wow, hearing him talk about leadership in a clubhouse culture and dealing with veterans and dealing with young guys, I went, he gets it. He he understands what it takes to be a leader in that clubhouse and gain respect to the players for while being the youngest manager across Major League Baseball. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We got a couple of things because I mentioned Tony LaRusse's name, and anytime you do that, that means that people are going to blast you because you can't compare anybody to TLR, and I get that. Tony LaRusse was an unbelievable manager for his time here in St. Louis. From the 636, guys, Ollie Marmol is not Tony LaRusse. I can't believe you even brought up his name in this conversation from the 314 guys tony's roster sucked the roster has two hall of famers on it right now they should absolutely have been better to be fair those two hall of famers had one of their worst seasons that they've had in their career last season and to the point that tony larusa's roster sucked well the year prior it was good enough to win 88 games and go to the nlcs and lose in game seven to the atlanta braves and then the next year they won 73 games in 1997 the following season you may remember the summer of 98 they won 83 games that year, and they had some guy on that team named Mark McGuire who hit 70 home runs. So they had some players. It wasn't ideal. They didn't have a great roster. I would also add that last year the Cardinals didn't have a great roster. They had a couple of guys. They had a couple of dudes on the roster. They didn't have a very good season. And you look at the, the pitching that the Cardinals had last year. 
it was way better of a pitching staff in 1997 compared to what all he had to handle last year. That team in 97 had Matt Morris, who had a 3.1 ERA, Bennis, who had a 3.1 ERA, the other Bennis, who had a 2.9 ERA that season. You look at the bullpen, they had some guys back there that you trusted. Like, the Cardinals pitching staff was okay in 97. Their problem was they didn't score a whole heck of a lot of runs that season. But last year, this Cardinals team had a lot of position players that got hurt and a pitching staff that was just awful. So, um, I understand. I'm not telling you that Ollie Marmol is going to be Tony Tony Larusa. My point is, we don't know what he's going to be. I thought year one he was a pretty good manager, and was some of that because he had Skip next to him? Sure. I would also add that I think he deserves credit for hiring Skip Schumacher. That is a risky thing to do, man. You're hiring a guy that you think can replace you, and that's his philosophy. He believes you should have somebody next to you that should someday be capable of replacing you. Last year he tried to hire Matt Holiday for that job. It's a big time hire. This year he hired uh, Daniel Descalso. I think he's potentially going to be a manager in the big league someday. I, he tried to hire Yadier Molina. I would say here in that interview, he really wanted Yadier Molina to be his bench coach. So like, I, I don't know, man. I give credit for that. I think trying to hire the best person possible to be the number two person next to you in charge. I think somebody deserves credit for that. Now, one of the other things that people are critical of Ali Marmel for is his use of the dreaded analytics. T-Bone, I hear this on our morning show. I hear it on our afternoon show. People do not like the word analytics. Now, if I switch the word analytics with information, I think we'd have different conversations, but we'll get to that a different day. Ali Marmel was on with Xavier Scruggs on his podcast. And first of all, I, I think it is well worth your time. If you are interested at all in the Cardinals, you want to learn more about Ali as a person, as a manager, I think it's worth your time to watch this. But he was asked, I thought, a really good question by Xavier Scruggs. Hey, on a scale of one being the least and being the most analytically inclined manager in Major League Baseball, where would you place yourself on that scale? I, I think this was a pretty revealing answer from Ollie. The scale of, like, most analytic oh, manager and, like, least man analytic manager – um where would you find yourself on that scale dude tough question if you're young that is the perception is they're bringing you in to basically run the game for you mm -hmm. right i was brought up by some pretty old school mentality mm. um it's a tough question like on a scale of one to ten like i love as much information as possible mm -hmm. and that's analytic information that's my coaches coming to me and letting me know hey i had a conversation with this guy his marriage isn't doing well. His mm. kids sit like that's information. Like mm. I want all of it. Yeah. Like give me. That's why I give everybody a seat at the table when it comes to coaches, analytic department. Like, oh. like I want you give me as much information as possible. I'll process it. I'll yeah. figure out how to use it. That's right. my job. That's yeah. what the seat entails, right? Yeah. So like I want all of it. Let me process it. Let me figure out what's actionable, mm -hmm. and then let's 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 go into this game. Yeah. Um. So on a scale, I'm not sure how to answer that other than like <laughs> i love information yeah that's what i would want to hear from a manager like if i'm going through and i'm a gm president of baseball operations owner right now i would never be put into any of those roles but if i was put into one of those roles and we were having an interview and we asked the potential manager what's your view of analytics and that was the answer that they gave me i'd be like check that box that guy gets it now, that doesn't mean that you go into a game and say to yourself, all right, we are going to be driven by the numbers now. That's not what Ollie said. 
give me as much information as possible, whether that's performance, nutrition, uh, injury history. Hey, the guy's his right foot is bothering him, so pushing off and trying to get power, his wrist just isn't responding right now. Like any of that, that's information. You take that and you internalize it, and then it allows you to make a decision based upon it. The decision that was made by Dan Campbell, right? Part of that is, hey, my kicker is not very good from 45 plus. My offense is converting on these situations at a 75% rate. If you go by the expected points out of the super nerdy analytical numbers, it is better for me here to go for it. You add in all of these different things. Oh, by the way, the 49ers don't have a very good run defense. We have a play that's been drawn up by Ben Johnson, one of the best OCs in the league that we think will definitely work against this look that they're giving us and if they don't give it to us maybe we can call a timeout here like all of these things are information they're different pieces of information some of it's advanced scouting some of it is analytical some of it is just understanding your players some of it is a gut feeling of hey we've got the momentum we want to put our foot on their throat stomp them into the ground and get to the Super Bowl because that's who we've been all year long. That is the ethos of this team. That is who we are in our personality from day one. Dan Campbell took over the job. Getting back to the Cardinals, that stuff also applies to baseball, man. There's just more information available in baseball than there is in any other sport. And again, I'm not telling you, you have to like it. I get annoyed by it sometimes. And I like the numbers. I think sometimes we get a little over our heads with it, but I think Ollie's approach to it is correct. If I was going into a season and I wanted my manager to at least have an understanding of this stuff and to use the information that is available to them, like if I was, if I was somebody that had founded a fortune 500 company and I was going to pass things off to the next man in charge, because I'm going into retirement, right? Am I going to pass it off to a guy that's not going to take into account every piece of information that is available to him? Hell no, man. If there's information available to you and you just ignore it, if you're taking over a mutual fund and there's some like blinking red lights that are out there that suggest, hey, this is a failing stock, but right now it's going up, 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 up. But there's bl blinking lights over here saying, hey, all of the underlying factors here suggest this is going to go down quickly. Like there is some bad stuff ahead, but you just keep buying, keep buying, keep buying, keep buying. That is not the way to operate. And as a manager, there are some guys that get away with that for a while. Eventually, it's going to come back to haunt you. So I, I like that he takes into account all of the information that is available to him. It doesn't mean that every decision is going to work. A lot of them won't. But if you do the opposite, it's a lot worse. We saw that with Mike Matheny. Yeah, yeah. I I like hearing that a manager is going to take in as much information as possible. And as you heard him say, some of it's not even the numbers. It's, hey, how's family life going for a player? Um, because I can remember, I, we couldn't pinpoint who it was that had said it, but when we were doing the Danny Mac uh, show with BK, we had a, somebody that was in an interview that mentioned how Whitey Herzog and Tony LaRusso would do that, to where they would know, hey, things are it's a struggle at home right now, maybe he needs a day off. He doesn't need to be out there playing. Or maybe for whatever reason, this is going to be a thing that will motivate him and we put him up in the lineup today. Like, those are the little things that people want from an old-school manager, and Ollie has a little bit of that. And the taking in the information, I... I would just find it ridiculous if I heard a manager all the time going, well, I went with my gut. Well, there's, okay, but like, don't you need something to support that? Don't you want to use the numbers as kind of a guide? You don't necessarily have to follow them. And I don't think Ollie Marmol used them all to a T. Um, but I, I'm glad to hear Ollie come out and basically say, hey, man, I want more information because I think that puts us in a better spot. And I think that's true. Like, I, I don't necessarily believe the more information you have, the worse off you are. Now, I do think some issue they ran into last year was 
a little bit more information, too thin of a staff overall. But I, I don't think that it, the more information in is worse for anybody. I think that is the best thing possible. And then him being able to use it and kind of streamline it to the guys to explain his decision of, hey, here's where we need to see you work on. We need to see a little bit of improvement against right-handed pitching. Or, you know what, you you struggle against 96-mile-an-hour fastballs. Let's go work on that in the cage. That That's the thing that I, I, I'm glad he takes all this information. And hearing him talk about it with Xavier Scruggs, sounds like he does a really good job of kind of help funneling it and using it to kind of tell the players. So that's the other thing that I think is really important is I think a lot of the time we just say analytics and it just becomes this like big overall umbrella of a word that doesn't actually mean it's lost all of its meaning. And instead, if we just talked about what we're actually meaning, like I, I get annoyed by this sometimes when when we talk about, hey, so-and-so, the, the Blues don't play hard. Okay, who? Like, let, let's let's label this. Let's actually dive into the conversation. Or, hey, the Cardinals don't have enough pitching. Okay, where, where are they light? Like, we just, we get into these big umbrella topics and don't actually specify what we're trying to discuss. And I think that becomes an issue with analytics and baseball maybe more than any other sport. Because we just say the word and we're like, okay, that's going to be a blanket statement for everything that could possibly fall underneath it. Okay, but what are we actually mad about? Are we mad about the fact that a coach has numbers that show this right-handed hitter in a certain situation against a pitcher that throws 70% sliders away from them is going to strike out 40% of the times in this spot? And if I instead go to my left-handed hitter, who is objectively a worse hitter overall, but in this specific situation would actually profile as a better hitter than my righty, then they make that swap and they're criticized for it because the right-hander is a better hitter. But in this situation, the quote-unquote analytics, which are actually specifics of the profile of pitcher versus the profile of hitter, which is as old school as you can possibly get, by the way, is a better matchup for us. The difference between the way that that used to be told to the manager through the manager to the media and the way that it is told now is it used to be a eye test. I thought that our lefty gave us a better at bat against that pitcher than our righty did. And now it is a I can actually by the numbers define why our left handed hitter in that spot was a better matchup against that right handed pitcher. And so I think that's what's happening now. But instead of actually using those terms, we say, yeah, the analytics told us that the lefty was better than the righty. And then people just blame, quote unquote, analytics when it doesn't work. It's not analytics. It's it's information. And that information has been around for 100 years. It's just now more defined. It's more nuanced. It's more specific in the way that we are processing it. And so because that is available, I don't want my manager to ignore me. I want my manager to utilize it. Don't allow that to define the moves that you make, but definitely take that into your process. And I think Ollie Marmel has done a pretty good job of that. All right, coming up next, better to forget it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's BK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. Six is the air comfort service text line for bet it or forget it. If you have a scenario, we'll tell you if we are betting it or forgetting it here on 101 ESPN. All right, T-Bone, let's start with this. Bet it or forget it. 
the Kansas City Chiefs will do it again in the Super Bowl and will overcome the fact that they are underdogs and Patrick Mahomes will once again win outright as an underdog. Ugh, I will bet it. I I think the way Patrick Mahomes is playing, it's the best of his career, I would say, right now. And it's been really impressive that this is the second year back-to-back that they are doing like a what would you call it? I want to call it a rebuild, but almost like a retool kind of on offense. Mm-hmm. And he's back at the Super Bowl again. I, I think he picks apart the 49ers defense because they're not getting to the quarterback. Defensively, they look pretty shoddy in that first half against the Detroit Lions. And then I don't know if Purdy's going to be able to do enough to beat them. So I, I guess I will bet this, that they will take down the San Francisco 49ers. Bet it for me as well. And not only solely because of what Mahomes will do to pick apart the San Francisco D at opportune times. But I love the fact that Pacheco gets another additional week of rest. And I do think this attack is patient enough now to stick with the run. It is so complimentary, both sides there and bold prediction here of sorts late in the going fourth quarter. MVS is going to come up with a huge catch for the third consecutive tilt. Third straight, man. Come on. Patrick Mahomes is 10-1-1 against the spread as an underdog. He is 9-3 straight up when he is an underdog in his NFL career. I'm betting it. I think that there is going to be, much like with the Ravens game where people... The Ravens defense is actually good. I'm not sure the 49ers defense is actually good. I think that might be a little bit of a fraudulent defense on there. And kind of the way that the... The Dolphins had a good offense, but by the end of the year, it was like, "Mm, I'm not sure that's actually a good offense over there. That might be a little fraudulent. I feel that way about the 49ers defense. I don't think that they're particularly um, creative in their blitz schemes. I think they run a lot of the same stuff over and over and over again. And that can work during a 17-week regular season. But when you get to the playoffs, we see this with Steve Spagnuolo. We've seen it in the past with Wink Martindale. Like, You need to have creative and different ideas, different plans for the way to attack these great quarterbacks on your schedule once you get to the playoffs. Otherwise, man, Lamar, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, they're going to tear you apart. And I don't think they have that with Steve Wilkes in San Francisco. I think the Chiefs have a capability of putting up 30 on that defense. And I don't think this offense is very great. But against that defense, I think they've got some answers. And I think the Chiefs defensive backs are a nightmare matchup for Brock Purdy. So I'm going to say Bennett as well. I think the Chiefs defense is the best unit playing in this game. And I think the Chiefs offense is third. I think it goes defense for the Chiefs, San Francisco offense, Chiefs offense, and then a dramatic fourth is the 49ers defense. So I'm going to bet it. T-Bone? Guys, bet it or forget it. We will see the St. Louis Blues make no moves at the NHL trade deadline. No addition, no subtraction. I'm going to say forget it. I think they make one small move of addition. I think they end up getting somebody that can be like a third line winger for them. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be something that gets people super excited, but we'll look at it and say, I get it. I could see how that could end up helping them. So I'm going to say uh, forget it. I think they make a move. Forget it as well. I think inevitably they're going to be in a position. They're still competitive. You're competing for one of those wild card spots. And to that end, you're certainly not going to go out and break the bank. You're not going to want a lot in the way of roster fluctuation. You like the chemistry that you have, but it's never a bad thing to add one of those additional depth pieces. Somebody who could fit maybe into the third, fourth line component, the arrangement there. I'm forgetting it for now. Yeah, I I would forget it as well because I think I agree with you guys. I think you have to add at least a top nine for. Forward. And I think you're right. It's probably going to be someone we've not really heard of. Yeah. It's kind of viewed as a project. But I, I think if you're Doug Armstrong and if your team's sitting in a playoff spot, 
you know you're not going all you're not making a big move because you even a big move I don't think makes him a Stanley Cup contender but at least bring in somebody that just kind of inject injects some belief into that locker room of hey look the front office didn't want to just blow us apart they actually believe we can maybe win a playoff series and they yeah. added something to our roster Bradford you have one or should we go to the text line I do BK as you know the three week search is over MU has settled on Corey Batoon yeah. as its new DC bet it or forget it Batoon and his knack for compiling a nice Havoc rate and stop rate is going to translate into a top five SEC defense this fall. Um, Year one. Top five in the SEC. Number four last year, technically. I'm going to say forget it. When you lose two corners the way that they had them last year, Chris Abrams, Drain, and Ennis Rakeshaw. Now, Rakeshaw was not healthy for most of the season, but he still was good when he was out there. Uh, I think that allows you to do so much. We're seeing that with the Chiefs this season where – they finally have two corners, and now you can see the full version of the Spagnolo defense because you can leave those guys on an island. And I think that was the case last year for Blake Baker, where he was just blitzing like a madman most of the season. I don't think you're going to be able to do that when you've got two corners that, even if they're good, they're not Abram Strain and Rake Straw. So I'm going to say forget it. I think they'll be fine. I do not think they'll be top five in the SEC. Timon? That's where I am. I, I would say forget it because they lost their corners. And they, I think they've done a pretty good job of filling out the defense for the most part, at least on paper. But I... Being top five in the SEC, losing, like you said, their they're top two corners, it's going to be tough. Hopper's a huge loss, too, at the second level, not to mention Robinson up front. You have some nice transfers coming in, but that transition is going to be daunting at times in the first month or two. I think Bama will be really good defensively this year. Shocker. LSU should be better. We'll see on how good Blake Baker is going there. Ole Miss, I think, is going to be excellent defensively. They got everybody they wanted from the portal. Kentucky's always good defensively. Tennessee's really good. And then I haven't mentioned Georgia. So if those are your top five teams and Mizzou comes in, and at six, I think you're going to feel pretty good. About How it. much does losing peoples really hurt as that edge rusher specialist to go along with Baker, do you think? I don't know. They haven't hired anybody for that job yet, so it, it's hard to say for sure. All right, let's get to a couple more of these really quickly. Better to forget it. The Cardinals will have at least four players with 30 or more home runs this year. T-Bone. Oh, boy. Comes from the 636. Um, let's see. So, let's. I'm going to go ahead and say forget it. 30 plus is, is a lot. I would forget it, too. Four four guys doing it would be to get to three. really hard. Who's your third? Gorman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Gorman, Arnato, Goldie. I mean, you hope that those two, Arnato and Goldie, get there. Um, the fourth, I mean, if there's a fourth person, it would you be need, You have to have at least two. You have yeah. to have at least two, and I think you probably need three if you're going to be a contender. I would agree with that, but I would forget this. I, Walker, I think, has got the fourth best pure power on the team, and I don't think he can get to 30. I, I think I think Bone had a write-up on him today, I think like 22 to 24. That's kind of what I would expect from Walker this year. Yeah. So I, I don't think he can, and I don't think Contreras has 30 home run power. Forget it, because the number 30 honestly feels a little arbitrary to me. If you have five to six guys in that 20 to 25 range, that's what you want. You want the line drive rate driving in the runs and compiling that OPS. So forget it, but still stay optimistic about yeah, what the general picture could 2013 do. 2013 Cardinals offense is what he's describing. Oh, there we go. Cardinals yeah. are hoping to recreate there we in go 20. Again. 24. Coming up next, we did get one of these. Better to forget it. Ben Johnson will be the top head coaching candidate next offseason. We'll talk about that a little bit. Coming up next, you're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner and Bradford. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. 
So I want to talk a little bit about Ben Johnson and what he's doing. He's the Lions offensive coordinator, and he has declined all opportunities uh, to become a head coach in the NFL this offseason. He has decided I'm going to stay in Detroit to be the Lions offensive coordinator in 2024. Now, it depends who you're listening to on this as to exactly why he's doing this. Adam Schefter came out and says, hey, he might have priced himself out of some of these conversations. There was a report, I think from a month ago, if I'm not mistaken, Josina Anderson said owners around the league believe that the price for Ben Johnson would be about $15 million, which would put him among the highest paid coaches in the NFL. That being said, he's also a hot coaching uh, candidate, so you can understand why he'd want the best price possible for himself. Hey, if you can get it, might as well try to go out there and grab it. I would also add this, the two jobs that remain, I'm not sure how appealing they really are right now. While I think the Washington commander's job is now a better job than it was when Dan Snyder was the owner, you have brand new ownership, and as we have seen with Carolina, it can be a mixed bag. Sometimes it goes well. A lot of the time, the new owner wants to come in, put every stamp possible on his team, and he wants to win immediately. So... We'll see how it goes in Washington. They have the number two overall pick. That can be good. It can also set a stop stopwatch to your impending doom. If that pick doesn't go well, well, you're getting fired in three years. Yeah, that's Frank Reich. And you're done. And if it doesn't go well in year one or two, I mean, you might be done after two seasons if the quarterback doesn't get it figured out right away. So I could see how you don't really see that as like the best job for you. Seattle just fired Pete Carroll. Their ownership is totally in flux right now, um, and we don't really know what the situation is with who's going to have final say on the roster. And, like, you've got Geno Smith, who you're inheriting. That's a really difficult division right now with San Francisco and L.A. both on the come up. Arizona might be getting better before they get worse. And I think Pete Carroll kind of squeezed out every ounce of what is available to you with the talent on that roster. And you're expecting to win and you're going to be too good to get your quarterback, it's a tough job to take right now. I get why Ben Johnson chose not to take a job this offseason. T-Bone, do you think he's still going to have the same value next year that he has right now, though? Or did he miss his opportunity to really capture that value, in your opinion? I, I think he'll still have a chance next off season. Like I, Unless the Lions offense suddenly just looks awful, I, I don't know <laughs> how you would look at Ben Johnson and say, no, we, we want to, don't want to bring him in. Because I think he's one of the best non-head coacher head coaches that's a great offensive mind like I would put him probably as the best offensive coordinator in football right now and that would be like and then I would run through a list and say okay now where's he rank in terms of offensive minds he'd be pretty high on that list for me so I think somebody's still going to give him an opportunity and if you're Ben Johnson like don't if you still feel like you're going to be a hot commodity next offseason yeah, don't take these jobs. These jobs stink. Like, keep waiting to see if one of the top ones does come available. There's a lot of teams that you can look at and say, hey, I could see how Buffalo would move on from yep. Sean McDermott. I could see how the Dallas Cowboys move on from Mike McCarthy. Hell, I could see how the Philadelphia Eagles move on from Nick Sirianni. So if I'm him, I would wait it out, wait to see if there is a better opportunity. And it's not like he's in a bad spot right now. It's not like hmm. he's going to return to Detroit and that offense is not going to have any of their pieces. They're returning a lot of the same pieces. He should still be a top commodity next offseason. Offensively, off season. they're returning almost all of their yeah. pieces. The defense, I've got some questions about going into next year, but their offense should be every bit as good as it was this year. I think you're right on like the jobs that became available this offseason. None of the ones that we were interested in that like, hey, what if job X, Y, and Z comes available? Who could they go out and acquire? Like, Imagine the candidates that they would attract. 
Buffalo, same situation as they were at the beginning of the season. Jacksonville, Philly, Dallas, KC, depending on what happens with Andy Reid. I don't think he's hanging it up anytime soon. But if I'm Ben Johnson and I've got all of these other outs, potentially, for the uh, poker players in our audience, uh, yeah, I'm going to include Kansas City as one potential out in this scenario as well. If any of those go sideways this year, those jobs are all better than what became available this past offseason. Now, you could argue LA. The Chargers job was a good one, I think, because you've got a quarterback in place. But you're also in Kansas City's division, which takes it down just a little bit in terms of what the ceiling is there. And I think they were just always going to hire Jim Harbaugh. I don't think Ben Johnson was ever going to be a top candidate for the L.A. Chargers. They they wanted Harbaugh. They got Harbaugh. If he didn't get that job there, I bet you Ben Johnson would have taken it. But he was never their top choice. They wanted Jim Harbaugh. He's a star. You're going to L.A. The Chargers don't have much notoriety there because the Rams are the team that is really like the number one team in L.A. And even they haven't really resonated with the L.A. fan base. So I I just don't think the one job that was really like super attractive this offseason, he wasn't the top candidate for. And when you go from there, I get how you talk yourself out of any of these others that became available. Yeah, I I could have seen maybe him talking himself into Atlanta, but outside of that, I I don't think you take any other ones. Because with Atlanta, at least you've got a bunch of really good pieces. Yeah, but I, I, and maybe this is me just, this is easier said than done is I would think like they're in the they should be getting Justin Fields. I've said this all offseason long. The Atlanta Falcons board in their office should say take the scraps of the Chicago Bears at the quarterback position and go or go sign a Kirk Cousins. Like there's routes that I could see where like if if you sat down in that interview process and you said, "Okay, what are we doing at quarterback?" Here's my thoughts, here's your thoughts. I could see where he could walk out of that going, "Yeah, this is the job." And it's an easy division. I think that's the other important yep. factor too is you're right about the Chargers. They had the quarterback though. So you can kind of talk yourself into, okay, I guess I'll go play Mahomes twice. At least in Atlanta, you could go, hell, even without the quarterback, we saw that we can still contend in this division because it stinks. Coming up next, I've got some analytics that I think we can all get behind. Again, come on. And it pertains to Taylor Swift and just how much she's actually on your television. Can we all stop getting up in arms over this? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. that I think we can all get behind. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kiley. I, I, we're not going back to the baseball conversation. We don't need to do that anymore. I know all of you are mad at me because I like the numbers and I like information and many of you do not. I get it. I, I'm i not blaming you for it. We've all got our different, differing opinions. Um, and that's what's fun about baseball. We can all have our differing opinions and we can come to a different conclusions. And that's A-OK. But when it comes to Taylor Swift, I will not allow for that. I will not allow for any more of the disparaging comments that I have seen. This woman is just trying to support the man that she loves, and she's trying to do so on a national spotlight, and it's hard. It's hard to do that. You are so invested in this relationship, and I can tell. I think they're getting married. I think these two are just lovebirds, and it. I I didn't see it coming. He shot his shot. It worked, and now they're they're. They're going to get married Gives together. Gives me hope at shooting my shot. See, there you go. You should shoot your shot, T-Bone. You're basically Travis Kelsey. Yeah. Ship them 100. Same bod, everything. So a gentleman by the name of Frank Luntz put out on Twitter the amount of time that Taylor Swift was shown on television during this past Sunday's Chiefs versus Ravens broadcast. He also put on this 
The amount of time that they showed people making, serving, or eating crab cakes in Baltimore, that was 27 seconds. The dolphins, sharks, and jellyfish that were shown at the local aquarium were on the television screen for 24 seconds. They showed Brittany Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes' wife, without Taylor Swift on television for 10 seconds. They showed either John Harbaugh's brother or his dad for a total of nine seconds during the broadcast. And Taylor Swift was shown for 44 seconds out of the three-hour and nine-minute football game. Everybody's got to chill, man. And I feel like this might be one of those things where, like, there's a very specific segment of our population that is actually upset about it. And we're getting mad at the people that are being upset about it. But it's actually a very small number of people that are actually upset about it. I think most people think this is, like, either neutral or cool. I don't know many people, at least in my own life, that are actually annoyed by the Taylor Swift stuff. Are you annoyed by any of this, T-Bone? I'm one of neutral because I don't care. Like, I... I think most people fall into the category of I'm watching the football game. And if they show Taylor Swift, whatever, just don't don't like break out of the football game to show Taylor Swift. As long as you don't miss any action by showing her fine. If you're showing Travis Kelsey scoring a touchdown and then going up to the broadcast or up to the um, the booth where you see her in the suite and she's celebrating blah, blah, blah for four seconds. And then you go back to the field, whatever. It doesn't affect anybody's ability to watch the football game. In fact, I think it enhances it. Because I just got to see Taylor Swift, one of the most famous people in the world, celebrating her boyfriend, her boo thing, scoring a touchdown on the field. And I personally find that to be pretty cool. You want to see that heart going up to the press box. You want to see it exactly. with the sweet. I have no problem with this whatsoever. And I hope, like nobody's business, that she is at the Super Bowl. Because that is the best <laughs> thing possible for all of us. All right, T-Bone, if anybody missed anything from today's show, they, sh- they could check out the podcast page. That is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Center. 101ESPN.com and the free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find that. Had some good conversations throughout the show today, so be sure to check those out. You can also find them on YouTube at YouTube.com slash 101ESPN. Those studio games are powered by the Air Alliance team. For T-Bone and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up next here on 101 ESPN. Trouble, trouble. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.